Okay, we're live and I'll turn on the recording as well. Right, uh, welcome everyone to our program commemorating the birth anniversary of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and the uh, Bangladesh uh, freedom struggle. I will be starting today's uh, free school with some remarks from uh, Dr. Montero, and we will then turn it over to today's uh, MC for today's events, Michelle. Thank you very much, Johan. And um, it's an honor for me to be asked to welcome everyone to this event, a historic event celebrating the life and martyrdom of Sheikh Mujibar Rahman, friend of the Bengali people and friend to the world, and to celebrate the founding of the Bangladeshi nation and its state of the whole people. This event objectively was a rejection of the British engineered partition of India and was perhaps a step forward in the reconsolidation civilizationally and politically of South Asia. However, we celebrate and commemorate in order to achieve ideological clarity and moral courage. I wish to express my own and the free school's gratitude to Meghna Chandra and Johan Chowdhury's vision and commitment to bringing into being this important conference. Their vision is anchored to the idea that we are all wrapped in a single garment of destiny and Bangladesh and the Bengali people are us and we are them. However, we gather at a critical moment in the history of the United States and indeed of the world. The United States is a politically divided nation where the political, ideological and class contradictions are so deep and so severe that they threaten the stability of the state and in many ways, the existence of the nation. Indeed, these circumstances create conditions where neither side might win. And to paraphrase the words of Karl Marx, who when speaking of the French Civil War, said that when neither side is capable of winning, one faces the destruction of all classes. America looks in many ways like that. We are a society riven by inequalities, by violence and by rogue cops who with impunity kill especially young black folk, but brown and even white folk. However, history moves forward and the fight for peace, nuclear and military disarmament, democracy and freedom 
proceed. We must be on the right side of history, which means we must be on the right side of the fight for world peace. Today, we look back so as to sharpen our vision and our collective imagination of the world we hope to bring into existence. I'd like to end with this. In 1975, the, the year of the brutal coup that overturned the revolutionary government of Bangladesh and led to the murder of Sheikh uh, Mujib Rahman, a popular African-American music band recorded a song entitled, A Harvest for the World. As we fight for that harvest, I would like to quote part of their lyrics that express that time and perhaps our own. Quote, gather every man, gather every woman, celebrate your lives, give thanks for your children, gather everyone, gather all together, overlooking none, hoping life gets better for the world. The Free School has said we share the vision of Martin Luther King Jr. That we, humanity, must build a world house where every woman, man, and child are sister and brother. When I speak tomorrow, I hope to say more about the epoch that we live in and the 21st century fight against imperialism. So thank you very much. I look forward to this great conference and all of the presentations. Uh, I'm certain it will be a great learning experience for all of us. So I'd like to at this time introduce the moderator, my friend and colleague, Michelle Liu. Thanks so much, Dr. Montero. And um, thank you everyone for attending today. I'm going to begin by introducing today's event briefly, Bangabandhu Bishwabandhu 100th Celebration, which translates to Friend of Bangladesh, Friend of the World. And as Dr. Montero and Jahan shared, this is a celebration of Bangladeshi freedom fighter, Sheikh Mujib Rahman. First, I wanna begin by reading our mission statement for the event today. We celebrate the legacy of Mujibir Rahman, the liberator of Bangladesh. His people gave him the name Bangabandhu, or friend of the Bengali people. We celebrate Mujibir Rahman not only for his contribution to the struggle of the Bengali people for their dignity and civilization, but for his contribution to the struggle of all mankind for peace, justice, and freedom. We celebrate Mujibir Rahman as a figure for our times in the era of the fall of the West and the rise of the East. Mujibir Rahman was born on March 17, 1920 in a small village called Tungipara. He was deeply shaped by the Bengal famine in which British empire starved 5 million people to death to serve their own selfishness. 
He became involved in the Muslim League under the mentorship of Hussein Sawardi and fought for an independent Pakistan. When Pakistan was made, Mujibir quickly realized that the Bengali people would have to fight again for their culture, their land, and their civilization. The Bangladeshi liberation movement was rooted in a long history of anti-colonial struggle. In 1757, the people of Bengal fought against the East India Company in the Battle of Plassey on the shores of the Huli River. The British conquerors destroyed the native Muslim weaving, Muslim weaving industry, cutting off the thumbs of Bengali weavers and turning them into beggars. They forced the peasants of Bengal to grow indigo rather than food crops, forcing them into debt and starvation. They created conflicts between the Hindus and Muslims. They starved the people of Bengal throughout their rule, murdering tens of millions of people. The Bengali people fought back again and again. From the Fakir Sanyasi revolt to the Farazi movement that organized peasants against the Zamindari rule, to the bamboo fort resistance, to the 1857 Sepoy Mutiny, to the Chittagram revolt, to the Tebaga movement, the people of Bengal, especially the peasants, drew upon their religion, language, and culture to fight against an unjust order. Mujibir Rahman drew his inspiration not only from the fertile soil of his homeland, but from revolutions all over the world. He was inspired by Sun Yat-sen, the great liberator of China. Sun Yat-sen spoke of the rule of might versus the rule of right. The rule of might was the way of the West, a cult of force, a civilization that used aeroplanes, bombs, and cannons to enforce its way upon the world. The rule of right was the way of the East, a moral order, a civilization that used knowledge, art, and culture to gain respect and spread peace throughout the world. Martin Luther King Jr. echoed this sentiment, saying that, quote, the richer we have become materially, the poorer we have become morally and spiritually. We have learned to fly the air like birds and swim the sea like fish, but we have not learned the simple art of living together as brothers, unquote. Mujibir Rahman fought against the treatment of the Bengali people as colonial subjects, denied their cultural, political, and, eco and economic rights in their own land. On March 17, 1971, Mujibir Rahman called for nothing less than full independence, declaring, quote, the Bengali people have learned how to die for a cause and you will not be able to bring them under your yoke of suppression, end quote. On March 25th, 1971, the Pakistani military dictatorship perpetrated a horrific gen genocide against the Bengali people, murdering intellectuals, minorities, children, and other innocents. Mujibir Rahman was arrested, but not before he declared that the Bengali people would fight to the end for their independence. Sadly, the United States government continued firmly down the path of the rule of might to dominate the Bengali people, supporting the Yahya regime throughout its genocide. They put Cold War motivations over human ones and were condemned not only by the people of the world, but by the people of conscience in their own country. 
They've threatened the subcontinent with nuclear war, sending their aircraft carriers into the Bay of Bengal. Nixon viewed the people of South Asia as subhuman, suggesting they needed another famine. The Bangladeshi people resisted murder, rape, arson, and other acts of untold horror. The peasants of Bengal turned into liberation fighters once again. With the aid of the Indian army, the Mukti Bahini freed their country from the colonial regime of West Pakistan on December 17, 1971. As the leader of a newly liberated nation, Bangabandhu extended friendship to the peoples of the world. He saluted the struggles in Africa, Asia, and Latin America of people guiding their own destiny. He opposed the war in Vietnam. He understood that colonialism did not end with formal independence and saw the need to end Western economic, military, and political domination. As he said in his speech in Algeria at the 1973 non-aligned movement, quote, I place in the name of the martyrs of Bangladesh, will always stand behind all those who are struggling for national liberation in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, end quote. He recognized the role of the West in denying the strivings of his people and championed the cause of non-alignment. He spoke of how the principles of non-alignment represented the aspirations of the toiling masses of the world. He enshrined in the Bangladeshi constitution support for the renunciation of force in international relations and for disarmament, for the right of people to determine their own social, economic, and political system, and support of oppressed peoples throughout the world in their just struggle against imperialism, colonialism, or racialism. Mujibir Rahman sacrificed greatly for his stances. He spent a total of 14 years in prison. His youngest son barely knew him as his father. He and his entire family were murdered in the darkness of the night in their own home by the forces of intolerance and hatred who sought to undo his legacy of secularism and independence. His legacy has been twisted and shorn of its substance by power seekers and fundamentalists. The true legacy of Mujibir Rahman, which we learn from his own words and from the wisdom of our elders is a light to us today. His ideas betrayed a faith in mankind and willingness to put humanity before self. As Fidel Castro said of Mujibir Rahman, quote, I have not seen the Himalayas, but I have seen Sheikh Mujib. In personality and in courage, this man is the Himalayas. I have thus had the experiencing of witnessing the Himalayas, end quote. In today's world, the Western order is on the decline. China is rising in its place, eradicating poverty and rebuilding the civilizational and economic ties of the Silk Road. However, even as Xi Jinping of China speaks of reviving the Bandung spirit, the West continues to promote the reactionary forces in Asia to make Asians fight Asians. As Bangabandhu reflected after his historic visit to China, quote, people from newly liberated countries had an obligation to come together for world peace. It was vital to build public opinion in favor of world peace, end quote. In this country, the vast majority of Americans no longer believe in their own democratic system. The people of this country cry out for peace while its leaders make war, war around the world. 
African Americans continue to fight for their freedom against joblessness, homelessness, gentrification, and for their own culture. The people of this country must look to the legacy of freedom fighters like Martin Luther King Jr., Sun Yat-sen, and Mujibir Rehman to understand how we make our way for a new world founded on peace, respect, and freedom for all. Thank you. So I wanted to take a minute to outline our agenda for the day. We're going to have two panel presentations, and then we will end with uh, musical performances from South Asia and America. Um, and I did want to say about the panels that we will have three panelists on each panel who will give their presentations, and then uh, we will follow each panel with a Q&A discussion. So uh, we'd like to encourage everyone to leave your comments in our Facebook live stream, and we will be moderating them and read them out for the Q&A. So our first panel is entitled, The Struggle for Freedom of the Darker Nations, Bangabandhu and the Bandung Vision. And in our first panel, we're going to be establishing the continuity of struggle against imperialism, the Bangladeshi liberation, and the non-aligned movement. Um, we believe that this history is relevant today in, as we've outlined, the decline of the West, in the context of the decline of the West and the rising Asia and specifically drawing upon the history of the Bandung Conference, which was the first meeting of the formerly colonized countries, um, which demonstrated a remarkable leap forward in pan-Asian and African unity. So in this panel, we are going to be showing the link between the Bangladeshi revolution and the struggle of um, these formerly colonized countries. So I'd like to begin by introducing our first panelist, who is Dr. Ziaudian Ahmad, professor of medicine and nephrology at Temple University, uh, who was a freedom fighter in the Bangladesh Liberation War. Uh, he's going to be sharing about his personal experiences in the struggle and also going to speak to the meaning of solidarity as well as the spirit of the youth. So I'd, I'd like to turn it over to you, Dr. Ziaudian. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you, all of you. Very grateful for celebrating the 100 years of our founder of the nation and 50th years of Bangladesh liberation. Today, when I look back 50 years ago in a greater picture, I can see the continuation of colonial mentality inserted by British, which utterly disregarded race and religion in our subcontinent. India was invaded by many groups and ethnicity over thousands of years, but all of them came to stay as Indian, except the British. In 1700, when most part of the country was ruled by Muslim Mughals, India had a 24.4% world GDP share, higher than entire Europe's 23.3%. However, after the British ruled for 200 years, the GDP fell to only 5.9%. They looted and plundered not only economic growth, but also social fabrics in many circumstances. 
British conspiracy deeply divided the Indian Muslims in India long before it was geographically divided between Pakistan and India in 1947. Pakistani ruling class and its military had inherited the same mentality with the twist of domestic colonialism during their services to British India. I still vividly have a memory of me waking up suddenly on the morning of 26th March, 1971, and found that I have no other choice except taking up arms and fight against murdering Pakistani army until I die or liberate the country. I was 18 years old medical student, first year medical student, son of a well-to-do family with no worries or political affiliation whatsoever. Urdu speaking West Pakistan elite group and military misrule of 23 years, undermining democracy, exploited the deed in East Pakistan's Bengali speaking population so much that the dream for a united country with equal right and respect was completely broken. Under the leadership and wisdom of a great leader, Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, in 1970, won the landslide victory after being jailed and tortured for many, many years. He united the Bengali nations. The military with the civilian party of Mr. Bhutto, instead of handing the power to elected body, suddenly started a genocide in East Pakistan. I fled home on seventh day to organize armed resistance. I went towards village for an unknown destination. Luckily, I found a fragment of rebel Bengali military who survived the attack by Pakistan in sleep. I joined them. Other students and farmers and all people from every corner slowly created people's army with help of Indian and Bengali army. The resistance by the freedom fighters, Mukti Jodha became increasingly intense against well-trained Pakistani army, but with broken morale, who had no agenda except killing and suppress the population by simply order by their superior and they could not sustain. During the war, I found out my father was killed by Pakistani army inside the hospital. He was the head of the Department of Surgery in Sirat Medical College, who refused to flood and stayed with his wounded patient when with another young doctor, a male nurse and an ambulance driver, when every doctor said to leave the war zone in town. I still remember the shock that I had not knowing what's happened to the rest of the family. After nine months of intense war in each villages and hate from each civilians, the plundering army lost their footings. The Indian army joined the war together, which took only 13 days to defeat the already broken 95,000 Pakistani army. 
they did not realize people can fight back against such atrocity, despite they had no military training or even weapon. The freedom fighters were mixtures of rebel Bengali Pakistani army, students, farmers, villagers, all came together to defend the ravaged destruction of their homes, villages, cities, raping their women and killing innocent civilians to create havoc in Bengali population, regardless of religion, age and gender. With utter dismay, they had killed 3 million Bengali innocent unarmed civilians, intellectuals, minorities, women and children, raped about half a million women. The only crime they had committed was democratically won the election to get their basic right. Bangladesh is the biggest testimony to the enduring truth that religion cannot peacefully unify a nation. The whole world was horrified, but the world politics and cult of alliance prevented direct support from most powerful government. Only India and Russia came forward with their strong support to our struggle. Though the peace-loving public from all over the world supported the war of freedom, Many Pakistani politicians, leaders, intellectuals, and media opposed such atrocities by their military, but the military brutally suppressed them too. When I came to United States, I was happy to know that the citizens of USA supported the freedom war despite President Nixon and Henry Kissinger policy to aid murdering Pakistani army. I met the Quaker group in Philadelphia who risked their own lives to blockade the Pakistani ship with small canoe and kayaks in Philadelphia and Baltimore to prevent armed shipment to Pakistan. I heard how Longshoremen Association refused to load the arm in Pakistani ships. I heard a big African-American man, Richard Askew, was the president of Philadelphia Longshoremen Association, who refused to load anything to Pakistani ship. He was asked by newsmen, your members will be out of money. He said, I don't want blood money. Every time I have pain and pride when I look back at the history, which I became a small part. I now more than ever in my new country, the United States, found that we need to reignite the Bendang spirit of Asian and African alliance against the cult of white supremacy together. I feel this young generations, which coming up with this beautiful spirit will give us hope and also become the, the power of uniting the basic truth of humanity. I thank you all for allowing me to speak in front of you. Thank you, Michelle. Thank you so much, Dr. Ziaudian, uh, for the beautiful first presentation of our event today. Um, 
I think learning directly from your experience is invaluable for, like you said, uh, regenerating the spirit of the youth and invoking the Bandung spirit. So thank you so much. Uh, next, I'd like to introduce our second panelist, Meghna Chandra, who is a PhD scholar at the University of Pennsylvania and Philadelphia activist, and finally a member of the Saturday Free School. She is going to be speaking on the historical context of non-alignment and the struggle for peace. Uh, specifically, she's going to explain why we are celebrating Sheikh Mujib today and what we can learn from the history of uh, his legacy. So I'll, I'll turn it over to you, you Meghna. Uh, Dr. Ziauddin, I have few words uh, that can express my appreciation for everything you've shared. Um, all I can say is you speaking what you spoke uh, has given us a lot of inspiration and also a goal to work towards. Um, may we all one day be able to have the same spirit of struggle and sacrifice um, that you and other revolutionary elders have shown. Um, uh, I also just wanted to uh, also just wanted to acknowledge uh, the organization also by my colleagues in India, Nanta and Raju, who have also been a very big part of organizing all of this, even though they're far away, we've been organizing in the mornings and the evenings together. So I just wanted to let everybody know they're still very much uh, the uh, driving force of the free school and of everything we do. So thank you to them also. Um, so I, I wanted to begin by addressing the question of why we look to the history of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and Bandung in these times. Why does Sheikh Mujibur Rahman belong not just to the Bangladeshi people, but to humanity? Why is he a figure of our times to whom we must look if we are to find a way out of our crisis of poverty and endless war? To quote Dr. Martin Luther King from his speech, Sleeping Through a Great Revolution. Through our scientific and technological genius, we have made of this world a neighborhood, and yet we have not had the ethical commitment to make of it a brotherhood. But somehow, and in some way, we have got to do this. We must all learn to live together as brothers, or we will all perish together as fools. We are tied together in the single garment of destiny, caught in an inescapable network of mutuality. And whatever affects one directly, affects all indirectly. For some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. That is the way God's universe is made. This is the way it is structured. Leaders of our great movements understood that brotherhood means embracing the struggles of other people as our own, because what affects one affects all. They understood that the genocide of the Bengali people threatened the peace and dignity of all people. They understood that without disarmament in the West, there could be no uplift for the poor and for humanity. Leaders like Dr. King also understood that America had everything to learn from the leaders of the darker nations who were leading a worldwide uprising of the shirtless and barefoot towards new systems of justice and equality. 
Sheikh Mujibur Rahman's life as a revolutionary spanned from his fearless struggle for Bengali culture and the Bengali people to his visionary leadership of a newly freed nation. As a non-aligned leader, he became Bishwabandhu, or friend of the world. In the spirit of Dr. Martin Luther King, I wanted to focus on a few points from his legacy that we can learn from for our times. Bangabandhu understood that politics had to be deeply rooted in the people and had unshakable faith in them. As Professor Rehman Soban said, Bangabandhu got his visions for the future from the masses of people. As a young man, he was expelled from his university for striking on behalf of the menial workers. He became a socialist, not from reading books alone, but from traveling his country on foot, in country boats, in the third class railway cars, dealing directly with the peasants and workers to build the Awami League. He said it was the poor, the Shorbohara, who bore the brunt of the fighting for Bangladesh. He emphasized throughout his political career that the nation was built on the backs of the workers and it was ultimately to them that the nation belonged. Addressing the intelligentsia of the new country, he said in 1975, the people whose faces resemble your father's face, your brother's face, the money is a fruit of their labor and they must be given greater respect. They work hard to earn the money to feed themselves. Please do not mind, but I have to ask, who taught us to read and write? We say our mothers and fathers, but who really afforded us this education? Who made us doctors? Who made us engineers? Who made it possible for us to study science? Who made us scientists? Who made us officers? Whose money was it? It is the money of the suffering people of Bengal. Bangabandhu's experience with the people helped him determine that freedom would not mean the ability of privileged people to step into the place of privileged Pakistanis, but that the people who form the backbone of the bone of the country share in the creation and distribution of wealth. It is for this reason he fought for land reform, the nationalization of banks, the elimination of monopolists and cartels, the nationalization of the jute and cotton industry, development of the rural areas, and education and equality for all citizens. In our times when wealthy progressives lecture working classes about wokeness, we must remember that it is the middle class who must be humbled and come from a place of duty and humility, not the other way around. Bangabandhu saw clearly that the struggle for development was inseparable from the struggle for peace. He noted that through the 20th, though the 20th century saw the cruelest wars in the history of mankind, it also saw the awakening of the toiling masses of the world who wanted to harness science and technology for the uplift of mankind. He proudly declared Bangladesh as a part of the non-aligned movement, saying in his speech, I place in the name of the martyrs of Bangladesh, those who are struggling for national liberation in Africa, Asia, and Latin America. He placed the sacrifice of the Bengali masses along the sacrifices of the masses of the world who fought so that their children could know peace. He identified the Western-led arms race as the enemy of the poor, sucking like a demonic suction tube. The investment in aid needed to help the countries of Africa and Asia rise from their colonial legacy of backwardness. He saw how war was used to prevent people of the darker nations from choosing their own path to development, destabilizing democratic governments, 
and installing puppet dictators who brought the people back to slavery or tried to. In our times, especially in the West, foreign policy is an afterthought to the struggle for social justice. Bangabandhu and the non-aligned spirit teach us that there is no separating the two, that we cannot have freedom and justice for our people while destroying the lives of our brothers and sisters around the world. Bangabandhu's clarity about the causes of oppression led to his courageous decision to consolidate leadership. He believed that the anti-colonial struggle, the, strung the struggle from Bengali liberation, and the struggle to develop his country were part of the same process of freedom. As an independent, democratically elected leader, holding the vast majority of seats in parliament, he faced attempts to destabilize his government through cowardly sabotage and political assassination the same thing that he was saw happen in Chile and other places in the world. In January 1975, he installed the Baksal government as a second revolution in Bangladesh. The Krishak Shramik Awami League brought together students, youth, and the intelligentsia in service of the nation. It aimed to reconstruct the Western colonial system of government, which separated the administrators from the people. The new government fought to end corruption, increase production in farms and factories, control population growth, and, and fight for national unity. Under Baksal, agricultural pr production rose, food distribution improved, and lawlessness was curbed. Baksal was one of the many experiments in Africa and Asia to try to bring true democracy to the people rooted in their civilization. As Du Bois writes in his masterpiece work, Russia in America, it might be through the philosophy of Gandhi and Tagore of Japan and China, really create a vast democracy into which the ruling dictatorship of the proletariat would fuse and deliquesce. And thus, instead of socialism even becoming a stark negation of the freedom of thought and tyranny of action and propaganda of science and art, it would expand to a great democracy of spirit. Though some academics say that Mujibur Rahman was betraying democracy, the black radical tradition shows us that they were enlarging democracy by bringing it to the masses of people by wiping away poverty. As we struggle to define democracy today, we cannot forget that democracy is meaningless as long as the people are submerged. In the United States, even as politicians speak supposedly of threats to our democracy, we must ask what democracy is there to protect as black communities face subpar schools and neighborhoods flooded with guns. Without visionary leadership on behalf of the people, there can be no justice. Finally, Bangabandhu teaches us that, as King says, there is no crown without a cross. He understood that sacrifice was necessary to win freedom. At the beginning of the struggle for Bangladesh, he warned his enemies that the Bengali people have learned how to die for a cause, and he will not be able to bring them under the yoke of suppression. He saw that freedom is won only through enormous sacrifice. He watched as, one by one, democratically elected leaders of the non-aligned country were betrayed and assassinated. He saw what happened to Salvador Allende and other freedom fighters in Africa and Asia who dared stand up to war. He knew that he might be next, but Bangabandhu did not falter. He pressed on in the fight for development and national unity. It was the traitors who hid in the dark, biding their time alongside American intelligence to murder Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and his 
almost his entire family, including a pregnant woman and a 10-year-old boy. As our conference today shows, Bangabandhu is not dead. The people who fought and died for Bangladesh are not dead, not truly. They are alive for the masses of the world who seek a new direction in our new era. As Martin Luther King quotes, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet the scaffold sways the future and behind the dim unknown stands God within the shadow keeping watch above his own. Thank you. Thank you so much, Magna, for the beautiful presentation. And now I'd like to introduce our last panelist uh, for our first panel, Serafina Harris, who is a Philadelphia artist, musician, and activist, and also a member of the Saturday Free School. She's going to be speaking on the role of art and culture and the folk traditions in unifying the people toward a struggle for peace. I'll start by attempting to explain uh, the moral striving of dark America to stress the need of a revolution of values that imbibe and develop a sense of strong self-determination. It is from this basis where unity and universality is born. Let's take a listen to the poetry of my people. When it rains five days and the skies turns dark at night, there is trouble taking place in the lowlands at night. I woke up this morning, can't get out of my door. There's enough trouble to make a poor girl wonder where she's about to go. Backwater blues made her pack her things and go because her house fell down and can't live there anymore. And what happened to this girl? Where does she go? What created her? A person without anything to lose. And at every corner in inner cities, there's a beat of a people. There's a rhythm that pulses life, and it comes from the way of life. The Negro problem to black people spaces one life, one's wife and children without job or dignity the mismanagement of resources to produce the ghettos full of houses that slump from a weak foundation, wherein monopoly-controlled cities can reconfigure um, them to their liking and squander life, the pursuit of, and the pursuit of liberty. As Langston Hughes states, oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me, and yet I swear this oath, America will be. It is through the darkness that life can be achieved, where Ray Charles can become an achievement, where my people saw and became John Henry, held the time, went to the mountaintop and beat the steam drill down, and died as a man who struggled completely for his dignity. My forefathers, the civilization of black folk, which uses the tragedy of life to be able to live life to the highest degree but with it we have the ability to accept and achieve good 
because it is the ability to pay one's dues, to be able to struggle instead of drowning of guilt and inhibition of not being able to face one's history as America has done for 400 years. It is black American civilization whose work songs Paul Robeson speaks of that are direct protests with venomous irony and have heroic revolutionary spirit. It's through black American spirituals that sing the, na the same struggle for freedom that Robeson also points out um, how, quote, Negroes sought in the Bible stories analogies with the history of their own slave existence and drew from these stories faith in the coming retribution for their oppressors, faith in the triumph of truth and justice. It is this folk tradition that stands as the basis and force for our people. Out of the people's language, rhythm, and striving, there is a call for peace that is not a lone cry. It is where Africa is found, China and India, the peoples of the Soviet states and Southern America. Paul Robeson and other artists like Lawrence Brown sought out the universality of folk music with the understanding that not only Black America belonged to a great inheritance to the great folk music of the world, end quote, but had basic, quote, sense of ties, which all people have to each other. This leads Robeson and myself today to the idea of a universal source of folk music. To think that there is a place in the heart of every civilization which connects people within them together and where the life world of culture stems has beautiful consequences in one's own thinking. Robeson soon found and took an interest in the pentatonic scale, which black people found after he hung up his banjo and hit the black keys on the piano. Carl Robeson presented this idea in an article entitled The Related Sounds of Music in 1957. The scale is without a doubt universal, which belongs to no nation or race, marks rather a stage of development of the musical consciousness of mankind. The Chinese and Japanese tended to this for centuries. We are familiar with this through some characteristic Scottish and Irish folk songs. Traces of the pentatonic can be found in the music of American Indians and Eskimos, just as the music of the Africans. In addition to the search for the universal origin of folk music, Robeson studied a vast amount of languages because he had begun to sing the songs of the peoples of the world. He soon spoke of the similarities and tie with them, like how Chinese and African languages make an extensive use of tone. Robeson points out, quote, that the Bantu tongues of the East and South Africa are in structure much like the languages of Mongolia or Hungarian or Japanese. It is when the added dimension of tone also complicates the structure and what Robeson calls the thinking of the language. Thus, the languages wherein Black America stems and what could be considered how Black America uses the English language are of Africa and Asia. The striving towards civilization is a responsibility that if denied by a ruling class will, will negate humanity 
destroying a people's mind, soul, body, and children. Yet people, whether they be Chinese, Vietnamese, Cambodians from the South uh, Asian subcontinent to Africa, the Latin Americas, and Black America, have separate yet similar traditions that have to be respected for civilization to prosper, and people can grow up and mature within them. This maturity isn't found in America. Maturity is found in the civilization of Black America. The ruling class in America is only accountable to monopoly and war. With even just the example that China shows in this time by eradicating poverty in the East and their friendship ties amongst the world, Asia, Asia pushes for movement of progressive humanity that roots people into the future instead of continuing to be dominated and subservient to Western imperial influence. But as the world moves on from the West, this country, as Baldwin states in his essay, Price of the Ticket, Black America must find a way to keep the faith with and excavate a reality much older than Europe. Europe has never been and cannot be a useful or valid touchstone for the American experience because America is not and never can be white. Similarly, uh, Rockman, Elizabeth Rockman states in his last speech that he was recorded to have given to ask the educated, when I talk about corruption, is my peasant the one who is corrupt? No. My laborer? No. Then who are the people that take the bribes? Who are the black marketeers? Who are the foreign agents? Who smuggles our money abroad? Who are the hoarders? It is us, the 5% who are educated. Among us, there are bribe takers and the corrupt. We have to reform our characters. We have to cleanse ourselves. The corrupt are among this 5%, not outside it. I would tell the educated class one thing. Your characters have not been reformed. The proletariat is folk inherently, and thus a part of the world similarity, which is the striving of humanity. It is in the dictatorship of the proletariat that Bandung continues to live. For the call for peace, as Robeson puts it, has a basis in culture, because it is the striving of people that creates culture. This can be heard in the songs in the working people who struggle for home, education, and a better life. There's a general difference between the culture of a people and the artist who emerges from a people. The, artis the artist is the skilled representative of a peoplehood, for they are trained for their people and live off their people. They are raised by society, and if sensitive and understanding enough, they are the mirror to the life world of people. The culture of people is the ground in which the artist stands. So there's a choice that an artist has to be with the people or not. As Robeson says, the artist must take sides. He must elect to fight for freedom or for slavery. I've made my choice. I had no alternative. The history of this era was characterized by the degradation of my people. Despoiled of their land, their culture destroyed, they are in every country save one, the USSR, denied equal protection of the law and 
deprived of their rightful place in the respect of their fellows. Again I say, the true artist cannot hold himself aloof. The legacy of culture from our predecessors is in danger. It is the foundation upon which we can build a still more lofty edifice. It belongs not only to us, not only to the present generation, it belongs to posterity and must be defended to the death. May you rally every artist, every scientist, every writer in England who loved democracy. May you rally every black man uh, to the side of Republican Spain." End quote. And if the artist is to stand for the truth, he would have to be able to see. The artist would have to be able to look at the world and be honest, because this is what gives morale and enlightens the unaware and emboldens the incapable. To stand for the truth is to showcase the striving of a people that is inherently towards peace and justice. The ruling class degrades the worker, causing war, the organized mass murder of a people and poverty, the robbery of a people's wealth and world resources. The revolutionary artist creates beauty through truth, adhering to what is based on what has been given to him from the people in history. The revolutionary artist that Robeson is an example of is a force for the molding of civilization, which is inherent and necessary to the fight for peace and exemplifies the striving of the people that of peace as the revolutionary artist is found in and built from the people. What would it mean to have this culture in the fore? What does it mean to have a concert with the purpose of educating people to struggle against imperialism, like in 1971, with Ravi Shankar, Ali Akbar Khan, George Harrison, and Billy Preston, about this same struggle we gather here today. They use the gifts that they have been trained for the purpose of standing for what is right. In doing so, they brought each of their upbringings, each of their own life worlds, to call for peace and truth understanding and goodwill to the stage, and it is inspiring not only because it is right, but because there were no falsehoods to hide behind. To believe in the future, to see beauty in the civilization, which is the moral compass of the person, seems to be similar to being called towards the truth. The truth is that the life world of black America cannot be forgotten because it is part of the world its past and future. In this historic moment, it is the imperialists attempting to erase the culture of black America and assert wokeness or water down the intelligence of people by reconfiguring black America to posturing and conceding violence, division, and pessimism. To give clarity to, for black people to move forward with humanity and for the historic freedom struggles of the years that are placed on my shoulders to be able to continue. There has to be a complete transformation that is led by the properly politically trained people determined in an honest selfhood that the life world of country is changed from the ground up. Thank you much. Thank you so much, Serafina. Now I'd like to read a few comments uh, from the live stream. 
Nandita Chaturvedi writes, Dear Dr. Ahmed, I was greatly moved by your account of your experience in the war. Thank you for sharing this with us. It shows how a people armed with a vision for their freedom, sure of the justness of their cause and determined to win cannot be defeated by force. And then there's a comment from, um, well, first I wanted to ask if uh, you you had any response to that. I just I just want to thank Nandita. She's one of the pioneers and she actually inspired me to get into this beautiful journey and I wish her best and she should keep in touch. We should do much more work in future. Thank you, Nandita. Stay well and safe. Um, I also actually had one more comment from Nandita. Uh, sorry, I got a little lost in the comments. But she writes, I wanted to say for Serafina's presentation that a big part of the Bangladeshi movement was the call for their language to be recognized and honored. The music of Bengal has played a big part in the freedom struggle with Nazrul Islam and Rabindranath Tagore forming the culture of struggle. I was hoping Dr. Ahmed could speak a little on this given his work on Nasrul Islam. <clears throat> Thank you, Nandita. Yes, uh, Nasrul Islam, he was a poet and a revolutionary. He was the probably only poet who was fighting against British who was in jail. Even he was in jail, he wrote songs that inspired the revolutionaries and the freedom fighters. Nozul's many books was uh, British uh, suspended. And Kazi Nozul Islam not only fought against the British, he also tried to unite Bengal, Bengali Hindus and Muslims in whole India. He married a Hindu woman without even converting her because he thought all the religions under one God has the same concept and the same things. At that time, it was unheard of. Kajinal Islam, most of his life, he wrote poems and songs for everyone, including prostitutes. He called them mother. Who, who placed you there? It's our fault. None of them before wrote for each and every part of the human being and, and the issues. He only was silenced when he was 44 years old. He had a dementia. 22 years of his only uh, productive life, he wrote more songs than even world famous world poet Tagore. He was writing, he was so talented. Wherever he goes, he'll write it in such a way and he'll give it to the people. And he created like Serfina should know. He created, he actually, one of the first Bengali singer and composer brought music from all over the world. He got music from Caribbeans, from Iran's, from every other place and which was not in Bengali in the, in the past. He, uh, Egypt, Arabs. So he actually improved the Bengali music in such a way like the 
like the whole world. He wanted the, he was the poet of the whole world. Anyway, so I cannot, I can go on and on, but he was, he was not actually known by us for whatever reason. Uh, I think we're trying a little bit to introduce him in the United States. And we have uh, one African-American vice chancellor of uh, UMass, Professor Langley, he actually learned Bengali, and Rachel McDermott from, uh, from Columbia. They actually now became a fan of Nazrul and writing on Nazrul's. And now I think he will be introduced to the English readers soon. Thank you very much, Nandita, for reminding me and giving me this opportunity to talk about my, and I'm the vice chairman of Nazul Convention for the last 30 years, and I actually made documentaries on him just to share with, with friends and the people who are interested in Nazul. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Ziaudi and Ahmed. Um, and actually in the last part of our conference today, uh, we will have songs by, songs of Nasrul Islam uh, sung. So um, we're looking forward to that. So before we move on to our second panel, uh, we are going to play a video of Bangabandhu's acceptance of the Jolio Curie Award. And for this video, I'd like to um, invite Purba to speak. Purba Chatterjee is a physics PhD at the University of Illinois um, who did her bachelor's uh, in Delhi and is originally from Bengal. So Purba will um, share the introduction and talk a little bit of, about the context of the Jolio Curie Award. morning. Uh, thanks, Michelle. Um, I have to begin by saying that I'm truly honored to be part of this wonderful celebration of a great leader and a great people. Before we watch this video, I'd like to say just a few words about the World Peace Council and the Julio Curie Peace Medal mm -hmm. and the significance of this medal being awarded to Sheikh Mujibur Rahman uh, in the context of Bangladesh's struggle for liberation. The World Peace Council is an international organization founded in 1950 to foster a world movement for lasting and positive peace, battling against the forces of imperialism and war. True to this revolutionary mandate, the World Peace Council has at the height of its operation, mobilized mass movements for worldwide disarmament, for the right of all oppressed peoples to independence and self-determination, and for peaceful coexistence and economic cooperation among nations. One of the most prominent leaders and thinkers of the World Peace Council was Ramesh Chandra, an Indian freedom fighter and member of the Communist Party of India. He served as the general secretary of the organization from 1953 and became its president in 1977. Ramesh believed the international peace movement 
to be the logical successor of India's freedom struggle, which was based on the principles of non-violent resistance. He also emphasized the interconnectedness of the struggle for peace with the struggle for national liberation everywhere in Asia and Africa. Consisting of representatives from more than 120 member countries, the World Peace Council stands for the belief that positive peace is not just freedom from the cost and degradation of war, but is also a prerequisite for the development of human potential to its fullest extent. As Ramesh Chandra said, we seek to bring down the cost of living and to raise high the price of life so that one day bread can be free and life so precious that no man shall ever buy another man's life. The World Peace Council awarded its highest honor, the Jolio Curie Peace Medal to Bangabandhu Sheikh Mujibur Rahman in October 1972 for his outstanding contributions to the cause of world peace and unity. Named in honor of Frederick Joliot Curie, a French physicist and the first president of the organization, the Joliot Curie Gold Medal had previously been awarded to Nelson Mandela, Pablo Neruda, Reverend Martin Luther King Jr., Fidel Castro, and other vanguard leaders of the World Peace Movement. The medal was physically presented to Sheikh Mujibur Rahman on 23rd May 1973 at the inaugural ceremony of the Asian Peace Conference held in Dhaka. This was the first ever international award for Bangladesh and signified worldwide recognition and respect for Bangabandhu's undying commitment to human peace and dignity, reflected in his firm support for non-alignment and his steadfast battle against the world arms race, against poverty and against human exploitation. Bangabandhu, while accepting the award, said that the Jolio Curie Peace Medal truly belonged to the three million martyrs of the ba Bangladeshi freedom struggle, who gave their lives to war so that the people could live in peace. Having witnessed what war does to a people, Bangabandhu avowed that peace and independence were one and the same for Bangladesh. He said, we want to establish peace everywhere in the world and we want to make that peace last. He declared unequivocal support for all anti-colonial struggles and progressive movements for peace, disarmament, and human welfare across the world, saying the just struggle of a people for their rights cannot be stopped by the force of arms. Felicitating him, Mr. Ramesh Chandra said that Bangabandhu, the friend of Bengal, is today Bishwabandhu, the friend of the world. We will now watch a video of Bangabandhu being honored with the Jolio Curie Peace Medal at this historic conference in Dhaka. Thank you, Purva.
শান্তি রক্তসেনা বঙ্গবন্ধু সারা বিশ্বের মুক্তিকামী মানুষের কাছে আজ শান্তি আর স্বাধীনতার মূর্ত প্রতীক মানব দরদি এই জননেতা তার উদার মানবিক আদর্শের জন্য আজ বিশ্ববন্দিত ঢাকায় বিশ্ব শান্তি পরিষদ আয়োজিত এশীয় শান্তি সম্মেলনে শান্তির অগ্রসেনা হিসেবে বঙ্গবন্ধুকে জুলিও কুড়ি শান্তি পদক দিয়ে সম্মান জানানো হলো বাংলাদেশ শান্তি পরিষদের সভাপতি এবং বহু বিশিষ্ট প্রতিনিধি এই সম্মেলনে ভাষণ দিলেন এশিয়া আফ্রিকা লাতিন আমেরিকা আরব দেশগুলো ইন্দোচীনে দারিদ্রের বিরুদ্ধে সংগ্রাম চালাবার ও শান্তির আলোয় উজ্জ্বল করে তোলার দীপ্ত সংকল্প ঘোষিত হল সারা বিশ্বের সমস্ত প্রগতিশীল আন্দোলনের প্রতি সমর্থন জানালো বাংলাদেশ বিশ্ব শান্তি পরিষদের মহাসচিব শ্রী রমেশ চন্দ্র বললেন বাংলাদেশ একা নয় সারা বিশ্ব আছে বাংলাদেশের পাশে এদেশের ত্রিশ লাখ শহীদ সাম্রাজ্যবাদ বিরোধী সংগ্রামে বাংলাদেশের শহীদ নন এরা এশিয়া তথা সারা দুনিয়ার শহীদ বঙ্গবন্ধু আজ বিশ্ববন্ধু বঙ্গবন্ধু শেখ মুজিবুর রহমান বললেন এক সাগর বক্ত দিয়ে আমাদের স্বাধীনতা লাভ করতে হয়েছে তাই আমরা মর্মে মর্মে অনুধাবন করি বিশ্ব শান্তি তথা আঞ্চলিক শান্তির অবিহার্যতা এই পটভূমিতে আমরা আপনারা বিশ্ব শান্তি আন্দোলনের সহমর্মী প্রতিনিধিরা আমাকে জুলিও কুড়ি শান্তি পদকে ভূত করেছেন এই সম্মানের জন্য আমি কৃতজ্ঞ শান্তি পদক সমগ্র বাঙালি জাতি দেশে কোটি মানুষের বিশ্বের কিছু মহাশক্তির অস্ত্র প্রতিযোগিতা বিশ্ব শান্তির পক্ষে বিবেচনক এক সাগর রক্ত দিয়ে এদেশ স্বাধীনতা লাভ করেছে তাই বিশ্ব শান্তির অপরিহার্যতা মর্মে মর্মে উপলব্ধি করে বাংলাদেশ বাংলাদেশ স্বপ্ন দেখে সেই বিশ্বের যে বিশ্ব হিংসায়ন মাত্র হবে না যেখানে থাকবে না নিত্য নিঠুর দ্বন্দ্ব
Thanks for the introduction, Prabhu. Um, and before we move on to the second part of our program today, I'm going to read a few of the comments on our live stream. Uh, Archishman Raju writes, I agree with Serafina's presentation on the commonality of culture and the importance of music, particularly folk music in creating a civilizational unity. One example of that was given by Ali Akbar Khan, who was born in Bangladesh and moved to the United States. He participated in the Bangladesh concert. He also collaborated with jazz musician John Handy to produce an album, Karina Supreme, which was based on John Coltrane's concept of love supreme, combining it with the Buddhist concept of Karina or compassion. Our world must move forward toward a peace which is increasingly defined by Karuna Supreme. Michelle, may I just uh, say something? Yep, please. Um, thank you very much to everyone. All the pre beautiful presentations, very moving. And I, I just like to reflect upon Purva and um, uh, Ramesh Chandra, a name that is not known in this country, and I dare say hardly known in India at this time. Uh, Ramesh, whom I knew, and many um, African-American freedom fighters knew Ramesh, including the leaders of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference which was uh, Martin Luther King's organization, uh, leaders of various peace movements uh, and black civil rights organizations in this country knew Romesh and he made himself known to us. And by knowing Romesh and being connected to Romesh, that was an avenue to our being connected to the world movement and to Sheikh uh, Mujibar Rahman. Uh, Ramesh Chandra, who we saw, and it was very moving for me to see him. Uh, and that's where I remember him. He was a, a very beautiful human being, a diplomat in some ways, but a tireless, fighter for world peace and freedom. Uh, he surrendered his entire life to this great cause. And, and frankly, uh, I would just say that at some point, India has to be proud of him as one of India's great heroes and freedom fighters. And of course, uh, in, in honoring uh, Sheikh Mujibar Rahman, it was a statement, a political statement about the unity of all of the anti-imperialist forces in South Asia. And I think uh, that political objective remains and must remain on the agenda uh, of all South Asians Pakistani, Indian, Bangladeshi, uh, Myanmar, uh, 
Sri Lanka, uh, the great unity of all of these forces, which is a way of securing peace in Asia and Pan-Asia. Uh, so I, I wanna thank you very much. It was very uh, emotional for me to see Romesh, that very, very beautiful man. He was a beautiful man. Thank you for sharing um, more about the history of Romesh Chandra, Dr. Montero. And before we move on to our next panel, I'd like to read one more comment from Ram Mohan Rai. He writes, the liberation struggle of Bangladesh is also a lesson for all of us that Pakistan or any other country built in the name of religion cannot remain the same in the name of religion. Pandit Jawaharlal Nehru had said that fascism is another name for communalism in India. Class struggle and struggle against imperialism is connected to each other. Would any of our, our panelists uh, like to say a few words um, before we move on to our next panel? Okay, otherwise we can move forward. So our second panel for the day is entitled Unity and Struggle, Systemic Crisis and Freedom for the American Poor. And now that we've spent uh, the first part of the conference establishing um, the historical and political context for our discussion of uh, Sheikh Mujibir Rahman, um, we'd like to move forward with this panel in linking, um, linking the Bangladeshi liberation movement to the hopes and the strivings of people uh, around the world. And especially in the context of a rising Asia and uh, the, the crisis of US empire. So really we're going to be answering the question, what does it mean, what does it mean to be rooted uh, and to know and to also synthesize this history, this history of the Bangladeshi liberation movement for today? Um, so our three panelists will be Jahan Zaib Chowdhury, Emily Dong and Brandon Doe. So um, they are the ones on video now and we're just waiting for Brandon. Um, but I'll go ahead and introduce Jahan first. Uh, so Jahan Zaib Chowdhury is a PhD scholar uh, at Carnegie Mellon, a writer and activist, uh, and finally a member of the Saturday Free School. He's going to be speaking about the context of the crisis and politics of empire in the world today. He's also going to elaborate on the ungovernability of the ruling class and um, explain the logic of the masses of people really wanting peace and their connection to this tradition of peace. Uh, thank you, Michelle. And uh, thank you everyone who's spoken so far for some very beautiful uh, presentations. And uh, I would just like to use this opportunity to share some of the ideas we've been developing uh, at the free school and, and perhaps put them into some of the context of this history as we uh, bring it to today. Uh, as uh, my colleagues have uh, established in the previous presentations and speaking, speaking of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman, 
we are speaking of a person who was part of the struggle of all of mankind for peace, justice, and freedom. And this was a struggle of all of what W.E.B. Du Bois called the darker nations of the world, a struggle against 500 years of Western domination and colonialism, but also a struggle for, a struggle for real freedom in which the scourges of poverty, war, and racism could be removed from this earth. This was a world revolution that unfolded over the past hundred years or so and came to shake the foundations of an unjust world order to its very core. This world revolution brought into being new governments, such as in Bangladesh, which were determined to use the power of the state to advance the livelihood of the masses and push for equality among nations, mutual understanding, disarmament, and the end of all wars of aggression. Yet this dream of Bangabandhu Sheikh Mujib and the broader world revolution remains incomplete in our day. We must remember that these were also experiments in democracy, true democracy, to create states that would give power to all the people and not just local elites, business people, or bureaucrats. These great struggles for freedom hardly received a moment of peace even after taking state power, facing constant external as well as internal attacks. As in the case of Bangladesh, they faced brutal counter-revolution meant to wipe out the leadership and memory of the freedom struggle. This story was repeated in many places all over the world. Sadly, for those of us in this country, nearly always with the hand of the United States government. We must also remember that it was in 1967 that Dr. Martin Luther King courageously called out the greatest purveyor of violence in the world, his own government. In the years after, in Bangladesh, in Vietnam, in Afghanistan, all across the vastness of Asia and Africa, Dr. King's statement would sadly be borne out by the actions of this government through brutal coups, invasions, reactionary military pacts, the devastating costs of the arms race and other forms of subversion. The United States would come to declare victory in what was known as the Cold War, which is really a war of, of a Western domination against all impulses and struggles for freedom. And uh, the US government would proclaim that humanity had to now follow the writ of the US government in all its actions. And so thus began a period of 30 years, which covers uh, the lives of most of us who are here uh, under the age of 30 or 35. These past 30 years in which capitalism in its neoliberal form endless wars waged by the United States and its allies, and a Western-dominated world order have gone largely unchallenged in the realm of politics as well as the realm of ideas. Perhaps this is why the history of freedom struggles like Bangladesh's have been so minimized, so forgotten, so suppressed. Maybe so that we do not realize that the world can actually be transformed Perhaps this is why this period in which we live has produced new theories of postmodernism, identity politics, and various forms of ultra leftism, 
to erase the idea that a revolution of the people and by the people can lead to a state by the people and of the people. And remembering Bangladesh, we remember a struggle like this so close to our, our own time with so many veterans of that struggle still living as we've seen today, a memory that reminds us that there are indeed moments in time when the oppressed can take the course of history into their own hands. And the life of Bangabandhu Sheikh Mujib reminds us that to be a friend of one's own people, one must be a friend to all the oppressed people of the world, as indeed Bishwabandhu became. The struggle of Bangladesh also reminds us of the struggle of the poor all over the world against the legacies of colonialism, as well as the greed of a small ruling elite. The world and the third world in particular continues to suffer from immense poverty amid an abundance of material as well as natural wealth and great innovations in technology. In these past 30 years, we have seen a great deal of violence by the West in Asia and Africa, as I've mentioned. But at the same time, there has been a quiet development of major Asian economies, especially the People's Republic of China. China has gained from strategically placing itself in relation to this Western dominated world order, but also more crucially from a political system of people's democracy based on the principle of serve the people, China's own ancient civilization and its revolutionary history. We should note this success of the model of people's democracy or what we could also call the state of the whole people or the civilizational state. As we note, Sheikh Mujib's own admiration for Sun Yat-sen and the Chinese revolution. And as we also note, his own attempts to develop people's democracy in Bangladesh and overcome the colonial legacy before his own tragic assassination. And in this century, we can recognize uh, that China has indeed made a monumental achievement in becoming the first major country in the third world to eradicate extreme poverty, resolve major problems in massive rural areas, and under the leadership of President Xi Jinping, declare a policy of peaceful coexistence and cooperation with the world through its bold belt and road initiative project. And in celebrating this whole history of the world anti-colonial revolution, these achievements uh, can be seen in their significance. Also, it is important to mention in our time that in these uh, past 30 years, reeling from the devastation of the collapse of the Soviet Union, Russia under the leadership of its president, Vladimir Putin has reemerged as a great power on the world stage. In refusing to be financially ruled by Wall Street, President Putin has returned dignity to the impoverished Russian people. At the same time, he has stood up to Western violations of international law in places such as Syria and the Ukraine. Crucially, Putin and Xi have built a strategic partnership, overcoming the tragic Sino-Soviet split, which caused devastation in the ranks of progressive forces during the Cold War. And uh, the, much of the tragedy of that was seen in Bangladesh as well. But in remembering Bangladesh, we also remember, as was mentioned earlier, the brave role of the Russian people 
and uniting with progressive forces in South Asia to stop genocide and the threats of nuclear war, which were being threatened by Nixon and Kissinger. And this memory alone should give us a great deal of hope that the spirit of Russian friendship with the peoples of the world today can contribute to a more just world. But in speaking of Russia and China and Bangladesh and the third world today, we must also remember what is happening in this country. We must speak of the effects of this uh, three decades of neoliberalism and globalization on the masses here. While this process has meant riches for American corporations and Wall Street, it has meant higher levels of impoverishment here in the American heartland. White workers who had assumed for a long time that the color line had protected them from the impoverishment faced by black workers faced a rude awakening. Especially after the 2008 financial crisis, much of America from the inner cities to the rural areas faced record levels of unemployment and underemployment, poverty, homelessness, addiction, premature deaths, illness, and other kinds of violence. In some ways coming to resemble many of the impoverished areas uh, in the third world. Particularly after the events of 9-11, half-truths, lies, and racist ideas about Muslim peoples were used to justify global war around the world, most notably wars of occupation in Afghanistan and Iraq, which are only now coming to commemorate their 20th anniversaries, becoming the longest official wars in US history. And while the upper middle class in the society, especially the group which we can call the professional managerial class, has found itself comfortable and insulated from the elite's policies of war and economic devastation. It was the masses who bore the traumas of war and the humiliation of poverty and ignorance. These large sections of the American people, which we can call stranded populations, were totally written off by the ruling elite. The US ruling elite thought it had arrived at a perfect form of control through two political parties that had come to agree on the need for unbridled capitalism and endless war. Yet as world history and the history of every society bears out, where there is injustice, there will be resistance, even in a vacuum. In 2016, looking back, we at the Free School can say that this vacuum of ideology was filled it was filled by a new populist movement, which though coarse and unpolished in many ways, found a coarse and unpolished leader and a political outsider named Donald J. Trump. Bitterly denounced by the polite political class of warmongers and servants of the financial oligarchy, Trump's critiques of neoliberalism and wars of regime change resonated with the anger of the masses against the policies of the established politicians. And this popular support allowed him to defeat political heavyweights in his quest for the White House, despite an endless assault from the mainstream media. Before we condemn the Trump movement as is popular in many circles for its political incorrectness, perhaps we should remember Dr. King's characterization of the urban riots of the 1960s, when he said that the riot is the language of the unheard. Perhaps the election of Trump, as coarse and unpolished as it is, 
is a manifestation of a rejection of an increasingly diverse and cosmopolitan elite and its values. Perhaps this represents the electoral equivalent of a riot of the unheard and left behind. The pr Trump presidency in its one term made serious moves against unrestrained free trade and for imperial retreat, attempting to withdraw troops from Syria and Afghanistan and pushing for a detente with Russia and North Korea. However, the Trump presidency was subject to immense attack from the mainstream media and hostile politicians who cynically characterized his administration as a fascist one driven by racism and invented dangerous conspiracy theories accusing Trump of being an agent of Russia. This first theory uh, justified threats of repression on the predominantly white masses that became Trump's vote base, the so-called deplorables, uh, through which the uh, ruling elite deployed dehumanizing rhetoric previously reserved for the black masses. And the second theories uh, about Russian interference are very dangerous and escalating tensions with a nuclear powered Russia. At the same time, throughout this Trump presidency, we saw evidence of subversion from within by the deep state, the forces that oversee war and empire and which never actually run for election. And evidence of this was seen through revelations that Trump's different attempts at withdrawing troops from around the world were sabotaged by his generals. And also that the FBI had been complicit in infiltrating his campaign and spreading information about the so-called Russiagate conspiracy. These actions by the permanent unelected forces of the government, particularly the top military brass and the intelligence agencies in direct opposition to a popularly elected president give the lie to the notion that the United States has a representative democracy or the best form of democracy. While this experience should also give us confidence in the preparedness of the masses to resist the elite, it also indicates the need to formulate a new theory of the US state, a people state based on the lessons of people's democracy in places such as China or Bangladesh or other revolutionary societies around the world. And just bringing this to recent events, despite the media onslaught against the Trump movement, Trump captured uh, and particularly vicious attacks alleging that the movement was entirely driven by racism and xenophobia. We know that Trump captured more minority voters than any Republican candidate since 1960. In fact, the 2020 election marked a narrow win uh, by the Biden administration in an election that nearly half of the country believed was unfair. This showed an increased division between the working class and the stranded populations versus the college educated professional managerial class. There's a widespread belief in this country that its institutions have produced a crisis of legitimacy for the US state. It is in this moment that the Biden administration, widely perceived as illegitimate itself, has come to the fore weaponizing theories of identity politics. This is a politics based on the privileging of identities of sexual orientation, gender, or even more sinisterly, an abstract ahistorical definition of race defined in such a way that the oppressed can only be saved by a woke elite holding the levers of power at the expense of understandings of, uh, at the expense of the understandings of uh, struggles against war, racism and poverty that were so well-defined in the 20th century. With, with the career warmongers back in power, we were told that America was saved 
uh, black lives would now truly matter. Anti-Asian violence would stop. The unpredictable effects of the COVID-19 pandemic would be dealt with. We must ask all of this at what cost? Would the moral question of war and peace still matter? Would the lives of the stranded and left behind here in America, in the inner cities, or in middle America, or even out in the Middle East, would, the, would those matter? Excuse me. What we can see in the first 100 days of this administration is the opposite of any kind of uh, moral clarity. Tall promises are being made to pacify the population at home, but abroad it is aggression on all fronts. We are seeing unprecedented military buildup on the borders of Russia, especially in Ukraine, where Biden has been personally complicit in the overthrow of a sovereign government in 2014. Similarly, the US military and its allies are provoking the People's Republic of China and the South China Sea and the Taiwan Strait. And all of this is being done in our name, the name of the people of the United States. And if anything, the history we've talked about today shows us the importance of standing up to the warmongering policies which are done in our name by our government. And all of this, I would, I would also like to remind everyone that we must remember that just one aircraft carrier, like the USS Enterprise, which uh, the Nixon administration had sent to threaten India and Bangladesh with nuclear war in 1971. A modern version of that aircraft carrier, which is being deployed now, cost some $13 billion to build and some $30 billion to operate in one year. While according to estimates, one sixth of this amount of money could house all of the homeless population in the United States. While at the same time, the United Nations Food and Agriculture Association says that the same $30 billion going into operating one aircraft carrier, if spent each year, could solve the problem of world hunger for that year. Yet in the midst of all this, the Biden administration has requested an obscene military budget of over $750 billion. And according to some estimates, the combined cost of all federal departments and agencies involved in warfare are associated efforts in 2019 alone came to over $1.25 trillion. So I want us to reflect on that number, $1.25 trillion spent on war and war preparedness. And I, want, I would like us to think about the moral choice before us, especially given the great example of, of Sheikh Mujibur Rahman and, and the Bangladeshi people and those who stood with them. We must think about the moral choice before us today in standing up for war and peace. Today, will we have the courage to see the barefooted and shirtless people of Asia and Africa as our brothers? Will we hear the voices of the unheard, angry at the injustices within our own society? Will we have the courage to resist the attacks and conformity of a depraved but supposedly woke elite? Will we see the need to stand for our own people and to stand with the world as Sheikh Mujib did? Will we have the strength to love in the true sense beyond the boundaries of race, religion, nationality, or location, regardless of who the current administration tells us our enemies are? And for those of us who hail from Asia, all parts of Asia, will we compromise our revolutionary heritage and the ancient values of our civilizations, which have given so much to the world, 
simply for a seat at the table of this woke elite. What we concede to being a part of a very superficial melting pot of selfishness, or will we take the opportunity to transform uh, this diverse society into a model of what Dr. King called the world house based on the principle of a single garment of destiny? Will this society regain that revolutionary spirit that America once presented to the world in the dethroning of monarchy in the spirit of 1776, in the struggle to reconstruct a racial democracy, or in the spirit of Martin Luther King, in the struggle to place ourselves on the right side of the world revolution? These are the questions that must be at the forefront of our minds as we move forward. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for uh, the very informative presentation, Jahan, which I think ties together a lot of the forces in history that we've been discussing in the free school as well. Um, and I'm sure we'll have a very rich discussion afterward. Um, I'd like to invite our second panelist to present now, who is Emily Dong, a union staff member and peace activist, as well as a member of the Saturday Free School. Uh, she will be presenting on the intertwined destinies of uh, the American worker, the Chinese uh, and the Bengali people, uh, specifically through the concepts of the Chinese dream, uh, the leader Sonar Bangla and King's dream for America. Thanks, Michelle. Um, I just wanna begin with another thank you to the organizers of this celebration of Sheikh Mujib um, his 100th birth anniversary and of the 50th independence anniversary of Bangladesh, and as well as all the participants who have already given their presentations and who will give their presentations tomorrow. Um, and I just wanna, I wanna begin with that thank you because I, like many, I think a lot of young people, especially in America, had not heard of Sheikh Mujib's name before. Um, and I also did not know much about the Bengali people's struggle for independence. And so in preparation for the event, the conversations we've had at the Saturday Free School about Sheikh Mujib and just through the planning of this event. Um, I've been really moved by and struck by how much the Bengali people, not just in Bangladesh, but also here in America, remember him so fondly and love him so much to this very day. Um, how much they revere and respect him as a leader um, because, of, because he reflected and he lived for and he died for the aspirations of his people. And so it's this and also, um, all of the implications for humanity's future that I want to talk about in my presentation today. Um, Sheikh Mujib's leadership, his dream for his people and the aspirations of his people are extremely re relevant for today in a world where Asia is rising and the West is in collapse. His dream for Bangladesh until his very last breath, a nation free from poverty and war is intertwined with China today, the plight and yearnings of the American poor, and finally of all humanity. And so emerging from Sheikh Mujib's dream and legacy, the rise of China and the rise of Asia in partnership with Africa, there may be an unfolding fruition of Bandung and of the world revolution for peace and democracy that Martin Luther King Jr., like Jahan just mentioned, hoped America could join. Um, and I want to begin by talking about how um, when China today talks about their development and their goal, they always reference achieving what Xi Jinping, the president of the People's Republic of China calls the Chinese dream for national rejuvenation. 
and it's the dream of building a moderately prosperous society after a century of humiliation and economic devastation from semi-colonialism, imperialism, and civil war. In other words, as a primary goal of Chinese socialism, Xi Jinping and the Chinese people are determined to eliminate poverty and to educate themselves. And the thing that I think is most significant is this, it's this very dream that Xi Jinping has explicitly said weaves the people of China and Bangladesh tightly together. In his recent message to the people of Bangladesh to commemorate Sheikh Mujib's birth in the 50th independence anniversary of Bangladesh, she said, quote, China and Bangladesh have supported each other and made progress together. Today, both countries are at a crucial stage of revitalization and development. The Chinese dream of great national renewal can well connect to the Shonar Bangla dream, end quote. Xi Jinping also emphasized in the same speech that Bangladesh and China's friendship outlives Europe with the Silk Road as its primary witness. Ancient links of intercivilizational economic and cultural exchange, tea, textile, ceramics, Buddhism, philosophy, all which mutually enrich the crystallization of human civilization. And Xi's reference to Shonar Bangla, which means golden Bangladesh, is a reference to Sheikh Mujib's enduring dream for Bangladesh a dream similar to that of the Chinese people in reconstructing their independent nations after centuries of Western domination, brutality, and suffering. In his last speech in 1975, before his brutal assassination, Sheikh Mujib described this dream for his nation, one that is still aspired to and in the process of being fulfilled. It's a future for millions of his beloved people free from hunger and poverty. Quote, you think we are poor, we will have to sell at the price you set, but this day will not last forever. We, the people of Bangladesh, we have land, we have Shonar Bangla, we have jute, we have gas, we have tea, we have forests, we have fish, we have livestock. If we can develop these resources, inshallah, this day will not last. And then he continues, quote, with economic independence, political independence is defeated. If suffering people cannot have full stomachs, cannot clothe themselves, if unemployment is not eradicated, peace cannot return to people's lives, end quote. Both Sheikh Mujib and Xi Jinping emphasize over and over again how horrible hunger is, how the first goal of their independent nations needs to be eliminating basic, terrible issues of impoverishment due to centuries of subjugation. No means of living, hunger, homelessness, and illiteracy. It's why a major focus of the Chinese Communist Party of China's five-year plan since its founding has been to permanently get rid of poverty, the Chinese dream and Shonar Bangla are not simply dreams of individual leaders. They are, the, they are the demands for the abolition of war and the abolition of poverty of the billions of darker peoples who have suffered at the hands of colonialism and imperialism. And it was Du Bois in his manuscript, Russian America, which we've talked a lot about in the Saturday Free School, who said these two ideals of abolishing war and poverty, in other words, ideals of peace and democracy are what unite humanity and in particular, the poor, the workers of the world, the peasants from China and Bangladesh, and eventually also to America. And I think the Chinese dream and Shonar Bangla today, together weaved, woven together have everything to do with the American poor. China's recent announcement of successfully eradicating extreme poverty, as well as Sheikh Mujib's concept of second revolution to centralize the state, feed his famished people, and plan efficiently and address basic issues this is the kind of leadership that the American people crave. 
why else do Americans remain so skeptical and suspicious of their so-called elected government? Americans wonder why the richest country in the world needs to borrow $1.9 trillion to apparently rescue itself. Where has the people's tax money gone? It surely has not gone into systematically lifting 100 million people out of extreme poverty over eight years, effectively eradicating extreme poverty like China has. What China has done for its people is what the American poor are calling for. Martin Luther King and the civil rights movement understood these aspirations. And the full title, I wanna bring up that the full title of his famous March on Washington in 1963 is the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. Many people only quote that one specific part of King's great I have a dream speech where he says, quote, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character, end quote. But many people forget that the larger speech was about the devastation America has inflicted on its own people by the false promise of the American dream and the lost ideals of American revolution, especially black Americans who are not actually free from white supremacy, homelessness and joblessness after emancipation. Thus all of America, including the poor whites and other poor face the devastation of an unfinished American revolution and unfulfilled ideals of equality, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And here's King, here's the quote um, from King's speech that I want to highlight, quote, but 100 years later, the Negro still is not free. 100 years later, the life of the Negro is still sadly crippled by the manacles of segregation and the chains of discrimination. 100 years later, the Negro lives on a lonely island of poverty in the midst of a vast ocean of material prosperity. 100 years later, the Negro is still languished in the corners of American society and finds himself in exile in his own land, end quote. And today we know that this island of poverty is even larger. It is not just black Americans on this island, but it is many poor whites whose industries and communities have been gutted and left behind to die. In the same tradition as Sheikh Mujib and Xi Jinping, the tradition of world revolution, King proposed his dream for America, quote, we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. We refuse to believe that there are insufficient funds in the great vaults of opportunity of this nation. And so we've come to cash our check, a check that will give us upon the, that will give us upon demands, the riches of freedom and the security of justice, end quote. And I think King's dream today is even more relevant. This part that we've come to cash this check because we refuse to believe that the bank of justice is bankrupt. And it's relevant not just for the black worker in America, but for the white worker who was unemployed, patronized by a woke elite in collaboration with the state, big tech, high finance, and the military. And King's words of the fierce urgency of now have even more relevance today for the majority of this country and the world. They describe the connected grievances and connected dreams of working people worldwide. The desire to be free from war, poverty, and white supremacy the dream of true democracy, self-determination, the right to a state that reflects and executes the will of the people, full participation in your country's social, political, and cultural life. What we have now is a devastated, angry population on all sides of the coin. Our government does not speak or act for the masses of people. King's dream for jobs and freedom, peace and democracy is the complete American dream that has yet to be completed. Our own American revolution founded on the declaration we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, has yet to be finished, when the rate of poverty has not significantly decreased in decades, 
and unemployment, homelessness, and death by despair, alcoholism, and addiction affect all corners of our country. Um, and I just want to note that I just returned from, for my work, I just returned from a strike in Northeast Pennsylvania. And a lot of the workers there had told me, they're like, did you know our part of Pennsylvania has some of the highest rates of death by despair? Um, and when they say death by despair, they mean suicide because of addiction, alcoholism, hopelessness. Um, and so I think King's I Have a Dream speech is even more relevant for today when so many American people don't even have a dream to look to. Um, and, and so King's I Have a Dream is this dream that unites the black worker and white worker in America and shows them their overwhelming and inextricable responsibility in the world struggle for peace and democracy. Um, one quick note is also I wanted to include that she's, Xi Jinping's Chinese dream is an important continuation of and lasting legacy of Sun Yat-sen's Three Principles of the People, which is Sun Yat-sen's anti-imperialist foundational vision of New China. Um, he he formalized his Three Principles in 1923 as a central program um, for the nationalists and communists to join forces under his leadership to build New China. And it roughly translates to nationalism, democracy, and socialism, better known as the livelihood of the people. And I want to mention this because Sheikh Mujib has noted Sun Yat-sen as um, one of his inspirations. And it's important to see that both of them understood their struggle for freedom and their dreams for their peoples as coming out of their ancient civilizations, an undeniable testament to the will, achievement, and potential of the billions of Chinese and Bengali people. Because many scholars assume Sun Yat-sen's vision of new China was modeled after Western bourgeois Republican democracy, but this is refuted by Sun Yat-sen himself. Both Sheikh Mujib and Sun Yat-sen saw their visions of nationalism and democracy in Bangladesh and China as coming out of their long civilizational history and values. As Sun said, although his three principles of the people takes the best of Western revolutionary ideals, such as Abraham Lincoln's for the people, by the people, of the people, he does not see something like nationalism as a Western idea, but actually a continuation of Chinese civilization, an independent state of, of diverse peoples connected by values and history, fighting for sovereignty, ready to be strengthened through economic and cultural exchange, as Chinese civilization has done since ancient times. Although Sun Yat-sen and Sheikh Mujib never called themselves socialists, their visions for their nations and their sense of duty to humanity are founded on the firm belief that the people determine history and the aspirations of the people are for self-determination, the chance for a decent life and for peace for mankind. Sheikh Mujib and Sun Yat-sen saw their independent struggles and the future of their people as a beautiful continuation of their long civilizations, the folk tradition of struggle, beauty, and will, and a heritage that urges you to remember your place in the fight for humanity's freedom, even when your country is free. Today, China is the world's second largest economy and will soon pass the United States. But beyond building its own economy, China under Xi Jinping's leadership has begun building economic partnerships based on mutuality, most of which are in Asia and Africa. Xi Jinping significantly says that the Belt and Road Initiative and partnerships like ASEAN's Regional Comprehensive Economic Partnership come out of, quote, the Bandung spirit and the Silk Road spirit. She likes to reference the travels of Indian monks, Kasyapa, Matanga, and Dharma Ras, Dharmaraksa to China. And when they went to China, they translated the Buddhist scriptures to Chinese for the first time. Or Xi Jinping likes to mention the monk Xuanzang's arduous pilgrimage to India. 
and the great Chinese navigator Zheng He's seven voyages into the Indian Ocean where he never conquered any inch of foreign land. I mention all this because Xi Jinping's references to Bandung solidarity, mutuality, and peaceful means in a dying age of Western civilization offers hope for cooperation between Asian and African countries with the common goal of uplifting mankind, eradicating extreme poverty worldwide, and allowing global peace and democracy to flourish. It's in this nexus of Sheikh Mujib's contribution to humanity's freedom and the Chinese dream where humanity might have a way out. As King said, America increasingly has a chance to be on the right side of world revolution, if not for the world, for its own people. America has an opportunity to fulfill its founding revolution for high ideals of equality and freedom. And today we have hope that the rule of right given substance by values and revolution in the East, as we've talked today, will prevail over the rule of might and move humanity into a new world. Thank you. Thank you so much uh, for a beautiful presentation, Emily. Um, linking together the fate and the history of peoples all over the world. Um, our final panelist today uh, will be Brandon Doe, who is a Philadelphia teacher, peace activist, and member of the Saturday Free School. He's going to speak on the role of the immigrant and principled unity with the Black worker today, especially um, in the context of the history of non-alignment. Thank you to the organizers of this event and um, my fellow panelists. Um, I found myself throughout this event being very inspired by the sacrifices made by the, Bang the people of Bengal, um, who, like the Vietnamese people, um, stood for what's right and their will and determination against forces of injustice wasn't just a fight for their own people, but a fight for the freedom of the world. And um, Moving forward, um, my presentation is about restoring the legacy of the non-aligned movement and the importance of preserving this history as a way forward. One of the central ideas behind Western philosophy is that history doesn't matter. Asian Americans are taught that their history begins upon their arrival to America rather than from their roots in Asia, which stretch back over a millennia. They are ingrained with the belief that their countries are full of morally corrupt and backwards people, and thus separated from the models, models of integrity and courage. Western philosophy is wrong. Our history makes us who we are, and we have suffered as a result of being detached from it. The erasure of our history and this distance from our civilization has also left us without a basis on how to relate to one another in America. In our cities plagued with segregation, poverty, child hunger, and increasing violence, it is, it is clear that the Western worldview has produced the chaos and moral degradation that we see today. There is something deep in the value system of the world's yellow, black, and brown majority that we need in order to save ourselves from self-destruction. We can learn these values by studying the anti-colonial and the non-aligned movement and to, to fulfill our responsibility, 
to uncover this lost legacy so that we can build the foundations of a new society and a new world. The non-aligned movement sparked by the Bandung Conference in 1955 was a coalition of Asian and African nations who prioritized peaceful coexistence and mutual cooperation. In spite of their cultural and political differences, the project was intended for darker nations to solve their problems and build their collective futures without seeking assistance from the West. Some countries were capitalists, some were communists, but foremost, they embraced a new possibility in refusing to let their relationships with one another be mediated through the West. President Sukarno of Indonesia said, we are of many different nations. We are of many different social backgrounds and cultural patterns. Our ways of life are different. Our national characters or colors or motifs, call it what you will, are different. Our racial stock is different. And even the color of our skin is different. But what does that matter? Mankind is united or divided by considerations other than these. Conflict comes not from variety of skins, nor from variety of religion, but from variety of desire. But what harm is in diversity when there is unity in desire? This conference is not to oppose each other. It is a conference of brotherhood. It is a body of enlightened, tolerant opinion which seeks to impress on the world that all men in all countries have their place under the sun, to impress on the world that it is possible to live together, meet together, speak to each other without losing one's individual identity, and yet to contribute to the, more, the general understanding of matters of common concern and to develop a true consciousness of the interdependence of men and nations for their well-being and survival on earth. An example of this solidarity can be found in the anti-colonial movement of Indochina, which was Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia, exemplified through the positions taken by Prince Noradam Sihanouk of Cambodia. To give a brief historical context, the country of Cambodia shares its eastern border with the country of Vietnam and its northern border with Laos. It is a civilization with ancient roots dating back thousands of years. Although there is a difference in culture, Cambodia shares deep historical ties with all of its neighbors. Shaped through centuries of Buddhism and Hinduism, the ideals of peace, harmony, and tolerance are deeply embedded in the hearts of Cambodian people. Toward the end of the 19th century, France began to extend its claws over the region and named it Indochina, which included Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia. After colonizing Vietnam in 1862, they took control over Cambodia and established the quote unquote, French protectorate of Cambodia. What did this mean? It meant that the French government would keep Cambodia quote unquote, safe from the threat of Vietnamese quote unquote, invasion. France was granted permission to do this by the King of Cambodia at the time, who was, to say the least, in a hard place, as he was the leader of a kingdom that was located between two other large kingdoms of Vietnam and Thailand. The French exploited this opportunity to divide and conquer the people of the region, exacerbating tensions between ethnic groups and inciting hatred between them. The founding of the Indochinese Communist Party in 1941 by Ho Chi Minh sought to unite the people of Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos in their common cause to defeat French colonialism. This threatened the core of French domination. 
So as a strategy to reconquer the people of these nations, they continued to exacerbate tensions between them. They even went as far as distributing leaflets, which chastised Cambodians for joining the Viet Minh, saying that by fighting side by side with the Vietnamese people against the French, they had joined the ranks of their quote unquote traditional enemies. They discouraged unity between the working class of the two people who often shared the same conditions as laborers on the same rubber plantations. They claimed to be the saviors of Cambodians. Furthermore, the French placed leaders into power who they thought would be best to fulfill the interests of their greed. Also, in 1941, Prince Norodom Sihanouk was chosen by the French to be the new king of Cambodia and groomed to be another Asian leader who would turn against his people to do the work of the West. Throughout his political career during the anti-colonial movement, he, however, stood defiant against the West. In 1953, he was threatened by John Foster Dulles, the US Secretary of State, who said that Sihanouk would lose his crown if he did not allow the Fran France to use Cambodia as a military base against Vietnam. And John Foster Dulles said, without the help of the French army, your country would quickly be conquered by the Reds and your independence would disappear. Sihanouk, however, stood strong and rejected this offer. On one occasion, when he was invited to the Philippines by the then US-backed government, he received a presidential welcome with a decadent parade, greeted by celebrities, high-ranking members of the government and movie stars. He learned that this was a plot organized by the CIA to coerce him to get Cambodia to join the Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, a coalition of nations brought together by the West to destroy the blossoming liberation movements of South and Southeast Asia. The next morning, he gave a speech declaring Cambodia's position as a non-aligned country, saying that Cambodia wanted no part of Seato. And he's quoted as saying, he, as in John Foster Dulles, had exhausted every argument to persuade me to place Cambodia under the protection of the Southeast Asian Treaty Organization. I refused because such an arrangement was contrary to the pledge of neutrality accepted by Cambodia in the 1954 Geneva Conference in which I was to reaffirm at the Bandung Conference in April, 1955. I considered Seato an aggressive military alliance directed against neighbors whose ideology I did not share, but with whom Cambodia had no quarrel. Cambodia wanted no part of Seato. We would look after ourselves as neutrals and Buddhists. To the creators of Seato, the lives of Asian people were expendable and only valuable to them insofar as they were willing to turn against other dark people. A US Senator at the time who echoed the, Rick, the Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger doctrine said, we pay them for killing each other while we reduce our own forces. Um, and just to pause real quick, um, Richard Nixon and Henry Kissinger, I mean, I believe they also played a role in the, in the Bangladeshi, um, the, the genocide in Bangladesh and in aiding the, uh, the military of Pakistan to commit that genocide. Um, and Seato was founded in 1955, uh, which is only several years after the independence of India was won. Um, 
and also only one year after the victory of Dien Bien Phu in Vietnam against the French. Um, this in fact happened when the Western-backed military of Pakistan attempted to defeat the Bangladesh Liberation War, which took place during the same time as the Vietnam War. The belt of Asian countries spanning from Southeast to South Asia was viewed by the imperialists as a single chessboard to defeat the rise of the colonized peoples against their former slave masters. So what affected one country inevitably infected, affected another and a defeat of imperialism in one led to the retreat of imperialist forces in another country. Prince Sihanouk refused to allow the West to dictate the Cambodian people's relationship to the Vietnamese people and of Asia. In fact, he threw his support to the Cambodian communist movement, which stood in solidarity with the Vietnamese freedom fighters in their struggle by supplying them with arms. During the height of the Vietnam War, he gave them permission to build the Ho Chi Minh Trail through Cambodia, which ultimately led to the defeat of the US military. There were many attempts to assassinate him. The West even cut off economic aid to Cambodia, but he stood strong in solidarity with the anti-colonial movements of Asia. He not only defended other Asians, but he looked to the best of their traditions for inspiration. Sihanouk once said after the death of Ho Chi Minh, I had deeply admired Uncle Ho. He belonged not only to Vietnam, but to Indochina, to Asia, and even to the world. For he stood for the rights of oppressed people everywhere, in the former colonies, and for the Blacks of the United States as well. For me, an Asian, he was above all a fellow Asian. Most importantly, he stood for solidarity between the two peoples of Vietnam and Cambodia and Pan-Asia. Uh, I'm talking about Prince Sihanouk. And he put the freedom over, of the masses over individual gain. He often spoke of the shared history between Cambodia and India of religion and cultural ties. This necessity to assert Asia's independence, not only economically, but asserting their right to think for themselves free from the lens of imperialism was exemplified by Prime Minister Indira Gandhi, who was the leader of India who threw her support to the liberation struggle of Bangladesh. In a non-aligned conference, she addressed cultural imperialism. She says, in spite of political sovereignty, most of us who have emerged from a colonial or semi-colonial past continue to have a rather un equal cultural and economic relationship with our respective former overlords. They often remain the main source of industrial equipment and technological guidance. The European language we speak itself becomes a conditioning element. Inadequacy of indigenous educational materials made us dependent on the books of these dominant countries, especially at the university stage. We imbibe their prejudices, even our image of ourselves, not to speak of the view of other countries, tends to conform to theirs. The self-deprecation and inferiority complex of some people of former colonies makes them easy prey to infiltration through forms of academic colonialism. The solidarity built in the early days of the anti-colonial movement led to the defeat of the US military and their puppet regimes in 1975. U.S. media outlets in Vietnam distributed newspapers saying that the communists would kill everyone who opposed their government. Sanctions imposed on the country of Vietnam by the West as punishment for, the, for their defiance 
crippled the economy and left the country among the poorest in the world. The overthrow of Sihanouk in 1970 and the and genocidal regimes would take his place in Cambodia in the decade after. The mass migration of people from Vietnam, Laos, and Cambodia to America began. The United States used it as an opportunity to once again restore their image as moral superiors and to save Asians against the other morally corrupt Asians. Operation Baby Lift was an initiative that carried this motive, where the same soldiers who bombed Vietnamese children were pictured holding Vietnamese orphans to transport them into planes that would get them safely to America. The fact is left out that they were the ones who created these orphans. According to Asian studies departments across the United States, this is where our history begins, only once we are saved by the West. Since our history begins when we are saved by the oppressor, does that not also mean that we are exempt of our responsibility to stand up to them? Is this not a way that Asian Americans reject their civilizations and become tools for US hegemony? Today, America is once again attempting to restore its image as the moral authority of the world by portraying themselves as allies to the Asian cause, although they have hypocritically spent over $700 billion on military weapons, which they plan to use against Asian countries. So-called anti-war advocates in the United States have demanded an end to xenophobia and anti-communist war rhetoric. Many Asian activists are attempting to deal with what they perceive to be the problem of violence against Asian Americans when they have yet to acknowledge the growing poverty in America across racial lines and the violence that is pervasive across this country. But what Asians face in America is not an issue unto itself. Those who have portrayed Asian Americans solely as victims instead of summoning the bravery to seek truth care more about being approved by the ruling class to secure their place in American society. What they fail to understand or what they willingly, willingly ignore is that we cannot truly defend Asian people in the US or abroad until we take responsibility for the future of America the way our ancestors took responsibility for the freedom of humanity. By remaining uncritical of the anti-Asian hate movement, they have identified themselves as potential obedient recipients of foundation money from the ruling class. Our responsibility is to listen to the people who Martin Luther King said belong to the other America, the most condemned members of our society, who we are warned are a threat to our democracy. We must listen to their silenced voices and learn from them things we might not have known about ourselves and what we share in common. King says in his speech against the Vietnam War, a time to break silence. Here is the true meaning and value of compassion and nonviolence. When it helps us to see the enemy's point of view, to hear his questions, to know his assessment of ourselves. For from his view, we may indeed see the basic weaknesses of our own condition. And if we are mature, we may learn and grow and profit from the wisdom of the brothers who are called the opposition. King asserts that to transform America, we must undergo a revolution of values. He says, true compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. 
A true revolution of values will soon look uneasily on the glaring contrast of poverty and wealth with righteous indignation. It will look across the seas and see individual capitalists of the West investing huge sums of money in Asia, Africa, and South America, only to take the profits out with no concern for the social betterment of the countries and say, this is not just. It will look at our alliance with the landed gentry of South America and say, this is not just. The Western arrogance of feeling that it has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them is not just. A true revolution of values will lay hand on the world order and say of war, this way of settling differences is not just. This business of burning humans, human beings with napalm, of filling our nation's homes with orphans and widows, of injecting poisonous drugs of hate into the veins of peoples normally humane, of sending, them, sending men home from dark and bloody battlefields, physically handicapped and psychologically deranged, cannot be reconciled with wisdom, justice, and love. A nation that continues year after year to spend more money on military defense than on programs of social uplift is approaching spiritual death. America, the richest and most powerful nation in the world, can well lead the way in this revolution of values. There is nothing except the tragic death wish to prevent us from reordering our priorities so that the pursuit of peace will take precedence over the pursuit of war. There is nothing to keep us from molding a recalcitrant status quo with bruised hands until we have fashioned it into a brotherhood. These are revolutionary times. All over the globe, men are revolting against old systems of exploitation and oppression. And out of the wombs of a frail world, new systems of justice and equality are being born. The shirtless and barefoot people of the land are rising up as never before. The people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. We in the West must support these revolutions. Our only hope today lies in our ability to recapture the revolutionary spirit and go out into a sometimes hostile world declaring eternal hostility to poverty, racism, and militarism. With this powerful commitment, we shall boldly challenge the status quo and unjust mores and thereby speed the day when every valley shall be exalted and every mountain and hill shall be made low, the crooked shall be made straight and the rough places plain. A genuine revolution of values means in the final analysis that our loyalties must become ecumenical rather than sectional. Every nation must now develop an overriding loyalty to mankind as a whole in order to preserve the best in their individual societies. This call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, race, class, and nation is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all mankind. There is a vast and beautiful world beyond us, waiting for us to join hands with the rising people of the East. By learning from the heroic examples of the anti-colonial movement, we can develop the criteria to call into question whose interest does it serve when people who share a common situation humiliate, degrade, and murder one another. Upon studying the non-aligned movement and the Black freedom movement, we can determine who our true enemies are rather than allowing our enemies to determine them for us. We Americans all have a history to claim, to be proud of, and a responsibility to inherit from that history. The traditions of Asia, 
and Black America teach us how not to just get along, but how we can unite on the basis of working towards moral development and social uplift. We bear on our shoulders the unfulfilled dreams of our ancestors, and the struggle for truth is intertwined with the fulfillment of this dream. There may be differences between us, but as long as the desire, as President Sukarno said, to live as brothers instead of enemies, as long as we have the desire, as President Sukarno said, to live as brothers instead of enemies, then we can choose civilization over imperialism, and we can begin to build our new tomorrow. Thank you for the presentation, Brandon. And that concludes the panel portion of our program today. Um, before moving on, I would like to read a few comments and also uh, open up a discussion between our panelists and any audience members who would like to share their thoughts uh, or any questions. I'm going to begin by reading a comment. Um, on our live stream from Pawan Kumar Aryan. He writes, Dear Dr. Ahmed G, was Mujibir Sahab also in Dhaka University when Dhaka Medical College and other political activists were fired and several killed by the Pakistani police force protesting and demanding for official status for Bangla tongue? Uh, yes, Dr. He was actually enduring the Bengali language movement, which is now internationally, international language movement uh, by, by UNICEF. He was actually in jail. The year before, he was arrested for the same movement. So he was in jail, but the other people got killed. Uh, so he was, if he were outside, he would have been in the crowd. So yes, he was in the movement, but he was in jail. Most of that life, he was in jail. If anything happened, they put him in jail. So no, he was not in that crowd, but the, when the students were killed, other leaders were in the outside. Thank you for the clarifications. Next, a comment from Purba Chatterjee. A leader who puts the people before power is feared by warmongers and imperialists. Mujib's assertion that the peasants and laborers who did the real work were deserving of the highest respect and his commitment to a democracy of the oppressed as opposed to a democracy of the oppressors made him a threat and he had to be killed. What Jahan said about the anti-Trump movement reflects in part the same fear, the identification of a leader with the masses of working class men and women. A comment from Alice Lee, thank you for this event and thank you panelists. These leaders, Sheikh Mujibir, Ramesh Chandra, Martin Luther King Jr., Sun Yat-sen, advanced and channeled the yearnings and struggles of the poor and oppressed in Bangladesh, Pakistan, India, the US, and China for national independence and development. They understood that these struggles were inescapably linked to the struggle against the Western domination and exploitation of the world over. Conditions that subjugate one corner of the world subjugate another. This is important for us who seek to uplift people not only in our respective countries, but also throughout the world. 
Sheikh Mujibir's legacy of revolutionary struggle is that of the people of Bangladesh, of America, and of the world. A comment from An Tran. It's so clear how unity should be the goal for the movements of our time. For example, with the anti-colonial struggles of the Vietnamese, Cambodian, and Lao peoples, the movements would support and coordinate their battles in such a way as to stretch the combined forces of the imperialist thin. Such is the importance of united struggle against a common enemy. If one liberation struggle faltered, they all would. If one struggle excelled, they all would benefit. I'll read one more comment from Sophie Hurt. This program has been very insightful and beautiful. Thank you to everyone involved. I am especially struck by Brandon's presentation about the Asian Americans role in society today, something that has to be critically examined. Rather than look to the revolutionary history of our people, like Dr. Ahmed described in his personal experience in the Bangladeshi struggle, the curriculum of Asian American studies and culture wants us to know, only know our identities as perpetual victims who do not make moral choices and revolutionary political alignments. And then we just uh, received a comment from Jeremiah Kim. He writes, I appreciate the clarity with which the panelists are showing that Americans still have a choice today to stand on the right side of the world revolution as King declared. By insisting upon the moral choice to move America away from war and exploitation, it seems that Dr. King was affirming the right to self-determination of the American people, especially the poor and working class. This right to self-determination is one of the great lessons that Americans can learn from the world anti-colonial struggle and non-aligned movement. I wanted to invite the panelists, um, any of the panelists so far from today uh, to respond to any of the comments or elaborate or you know, to discuss any points further. Uh, well, I can just start by saying that I, I think that a final point uh, Jeremiah made is very important of, uh, I think that really why we're doing this is because people of the United States have a lot to learn from uh, what's happened in the world and these, these great struggles like in Bangladesh. Well, first, we also have to learn about the role of the U.S. state and all of this, and we, all, and we have to learn about the, the victory of the people. But as we also move forward in this moment of great crisis, it is also a moment of great opportunity. And uh, if we have the courage to think independently from what's being presented to us, we uh, can actually fashion a different future that corrects these great uh, errors and sins uh, of the past. And uh, also this point about, uh, as Brandon and Emily were talking about, it was the Asian American study, and uh, the idea that we also have to think beyond what we're presented as the Asian American experience. It's not an experience of victimhood. It is an experience of, uh, it can be at least an experience of the triumph of these great traditions of Asia that we have so many people like Dr. Emma, then many people who've 
personally lived through these events and then also if that can be connected to the great revolutionary tradition of the united states particularly the black freedom struggle that that can be such a powerful combination for both the united states and uh the world so that's just something i'm very struck by the kind of mosaic that we have painted today with all what everyone has has presented thank you Jahan. i think you said very well i think today's sometimes people don't want to listen the long seminars even the each and every seminar is excellent how can we concise the whole concept of each each of the seminars and make more connections with different groups like when you have a african-american event how can one of us can go and and discuss and present and vice versa so from this seminar we can take home message that this is the beginning of the, the process and how can we make it like more known to first with Asian African unity purpose, especially now, whatever is happening uh, in the Asians, uh, this, this uh, leverage happening, how can we show that we have to protest it? What's, what is the platform? How can, we, how can we make a platform and show the unity, show that you know, this is not Americans and we, it's not the forefathers, uh, founders of uh, United States, or the Islamic people of the mainstream United States want us to be. So those are the things maybe you guys can uh, formulate, and you can have a whole year-round physical presentation. I mean, I mean, Zoom somehow to share the the feelings that we have learned so much. Thank you. Um, I, I, I agree with that, uh, Dr. Ahmed. I also just think that um, what has struck me about today is how actually going back to what these leaders have said in Bandung, um, what Sheikh Mujibur Rahman said in that speech that Purba has translated for us, uh, it really does give such a, like Jahan was saying, it really does give such a different analysis of what's happening you know, being rooted in the people, being rooted in peace, being rooted in personal sacrifice and struggle. Um, and I think that is also why these voices and these, uh, this analysis has been so buried. Um, and I really appreciated Emily's broad formulation of the American dream, the Chinese dream, because we're talking about something so simple. You know, people, children should have a right to food. Um, we sh uh, the uh, colonial countries have a right to development, um, but somehow we've just gotten so far away from it with all the, you know, the way the mass media formulates things. So I've just appreciated how all the presentations have grounded in this very complex history, but also very simple ideas that are, are the ideas of the people. So I just wanted to thank everybody for that. You know, one of the things I found very moving about the presentations is how overarchingly significant to everyone, especially the younger generation, the words and thinking of Martin Luther King 
are. Uh, you know, one of the things uh, that uh, the great capitalist reset that Klaus Schwab and the uh, people at the World Economic Forum uh, are pushing for is the ideological and moral fragmentation of the masses. Just wanna underline that. The ideological and moral fragmentation of the people, uh, which means ideological confusion and distraction and amorality, that is without morality. Uh, this is the very opposite of everything that Martin Luther King, Diane Nash, Ella Baker, James Lawson, Ralph Abernathy, we could name them all, uh, in the freedom movement of the 50s and 60s, not to mention Paul Robeson, who said the artist must take a stance, which is another way of saying the artist and intellectual, and I guess this is Johan's uh, presentation too, the artist and the intellectual is not above the moral struggle. Uh, in fact, from a Du Boisian point of view, the intellectual must choose to be in the vanguard of the fight for freedom. There is no idea that I, I can't get my hands dirty. As King would say, to whom much is given, much is required. So if you've had the luxury to get an advanced degree, you are responsible morally to give more than the person who has hardly an education at all. Um, so I think, and I agree completely with it, Martin Luther King was the moral voice of the epoch. Um, it's just few thinkers and activists who go beyond him. He, he laid out, and this is, this is, I guess this is something we all have to learn and relearn, how to be a moral human being, or better yet, how to be a human being. Because the moment we abandon morality, we cease to be human and we descend into barbarism. And, um, and you can't, I guess I'll end on this thinking about um, Bangladesh. You can't commit genocide in 1971 and then walk away and 20 years later said, well, I made a mistake. You can't drop napalm in Vietnam and then uh, a few years later, a couple decades later, claim that now you're for peace. You first have to atone. You have to go before the people and say, I have sinned. I've done wrong against humanity and ask humanity 
to forgive you and you do recompense. Um, I guess that's, I, I say that only because of this relevance, especially, uh, and, you know, I picked this up from everybody, especially Brandon, his presentation, the immense hypocrisy of the ruling elite of this country who claim to be woke, woke about everything but the moral choice to serve humanity, to end war, to end poverty, but you're woke. That is the great moral hypocrisy of our time and we have to expose it and, uh, and eviscerate it uh, and bring it down. Yeah, and what you just said also reminded me of the king's relevance, this whole thing of serving the people. Um, and what you said about all of you who get degrees, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to go back and serve the people? It reminded me of that part. I think Magna read it out in her presentation, but it's that part of Mujib's last speech where he says he's talking, I think he's laying out like different parts of society and the purpose they need to serve in reconstruction. But when he talks about educators and teachers, he says, like, first of all, he says, don't forget who's, I think this is the part Magnet read, don't forget whose money it was that allowed you to even become a teacher. But then also don't forget your number one duty is to make men out of these young boys. You know, go back and serve the people, teach boys to become men. And that's, and it's like almost, sim it's like what Magna was saying too. It's like almost so simple, but it's what you were saying, Doc. It's that moral question. Um, and we can create as many empty abstract terms, post this, post, post that, pre this, like whatever, trans that, but none of it can explain that moral question, which is the essence of humanity. And in such a simple way, Mujib does that when he says, don't forget as a teacher, you need to make men out of boys. Um, teach them how to be human beings. Um, and I agree, throughout this whole day, I, I really saw the interlinking of King and Mujib. And Mujib has, Mujib has such a moral, like someone with high morals. And I think that's why the people love him so much. Um, and that's what makes a great leader. They believe in the people, they know that people they know that their people, no matter how poor they are, have potential and are intelligent, um, but also that they uphold morals um, that come in the values from civilization. Um, yeah, it's, I find Mujib to be really a, an emotional character, um, an emotional leader. And I'm really happy that I was able to learn about him from this event and connect him to today and this, a moment of life potential, but also a lot of struggle. Yeah, I also wanted to add a few words. Um, just hearing all the presentations today, hearing directly about the history of the struggle from you, Dr. Ahmed, has been, um, like everyone has echoed, tremendously inspiring, but also clarifying because 
So many of the concepts and the legacies we've been talking today are ones that we've been discussing for years in the free school. And I think it's really humbling to see how, um, how purely and how simply it all fits together, you know, even through the framework of the Bangladeshi liberation struggle. And I think it speaks to how much we have um, synthesized a legacy in the tradition of um, humanity, you know, through a very moral, spiritual, cultural tradition, uh, which you can find in all corners of the earth, um, talking about Africa, Asia, um, America, Afro-America, Asian America. Um, and yeah, I, th I think it's, it's just been a completely um, humbling and clarifying discussion. And uh, I wanna thank all, all of our panelists uh, for, for preparing such beautiful, comprehensive discussions today um, and presentations. So thank you so much for everyone who participated. Um, I, yeah. <laughs> uh, I will keep an eye on the comments and certainly bring up any other comments that people raise. Uh, but I did want to move on to the last part of our presentation or the last part of our program for today, which is um, cultural performances. Uh, well, before I introduce those, we have one more comment from Nandita Chaturvedi, so I'll read that right now. She writes, I have been struck by some of the similarities between Bangladesh and Vietnam. Both were wars fought by the peasantry of a small and poor nation coming out of colonialism against an army which was either the US or indirectly supported by the US. Both struggles show the optimism of that time, the belief that revolutionary forces could win the world. And then the assassinations and the setbacks. In South Asia, they took down both Mujib and Indira Gandhi. Then they took down Bhutto and Pakistan, who they saw as too much of a wild card even though he was friendly to the US to set up Western intervention in Afghanistan. So much of this history has to be dug out. I also want to emphasize Indira's principled role in, a world, in world affairs at this time. She was a master strategist and the Indo-Soviet Alliance opened up space for leaders like Mujib to operate. Thanks, Nanita. And uh, she's commenting from India, so I know it's getting pretty late, um, but Thank you for staying on and being able to share that. Um, yeah, one other thing I wanted to add in line with Nanita's comment, it's, you know, looking at the struggle of the Bangladeshi people today, um, we see these parallels in history across these dif different nations and these different continents. And it's, it's just so beautiful to see that, you know, that there has been forged uh, a common identity and a common legacy by all these peoples who have faced the aggression of Western uh, and US imperialism. And in some ways, so much of this history is tragic, but I think that what we're walking away with from an event like this is for me, a sense of clarity and uplift and hope and conviction that um, it is our role to continue uh, to clarify this history and to learn the lessons which are yet to be drawn out for our time um, and to like everyone has been saying complete this you know complete the American revolution to come and yeah as tragic as this, as this history is I actually feel um, I actually think that a lot of us are very hopeful that leaders like Sheikh Mujib um, 
you know, can be produced again, and that we are forging that same moral character for today. There's another comment from Dobian, so I'm going to read that. He writes, Porba's earlier quote of Ramesh Chandra of how the logical continuation of the Indian independence movement is one for world peace really resonated with me. It does not feel like an accident that all the great leaders for peace came out of these peoples who went through anti-colonial struggles. The principle of peace comes from their logical understanding of King's concept of single garment of destiny. This concept is not just a feel good saying, which is the way some people dismiss King's words I've witnessed in today's ideological landscape. And haha, -ha, Emily, at pre this, post, post that. <laughs> uh, one more comment from Jamila Wilson. Thank you for this conference and reminder of our greater role to serve all of humanity, no matter where we are from. Okay, let's move on to the cultural performances before we conclude for the day. Uh, so for the last part of our program, we're having uh, two musical performances, uh, one by Serafina Harris uh, singing the African-American freedom songs, and then another by um, Tamal Hussein, who I'll introduce afterward. Uh, but I'd like to invite Serafina to um, begin her performance. Okay, I'll be singing, um, well, usually I sing the song Jake by Fuzzer, but um, it'll be Deep River. Um, Paul Robeson had a version of this, and many other, um, I guess, folk artists. Deep River, my
want to cross over into campground. That's you, honey. Thank you. Thank you, Serafina. Um, yeah, for the beautiful singing. <laughs> so our last performance will be by um, Tamal Hussein, who is a graduate student at the University of Chicago, who researches music of the Indian Ocean region, Tirana music and Bengali Kawali music. Um, he will be singing the music of uh, Nasrul Islam, a freedom fighter, who is a freedom fighter. And um, I would like to ask you to share a few wor words about Nasrul Sangeet uh, before your performance. Sure. Hi, everybody. Um, that was a beautiful performance. Thank you, Tarafina, for that. Um, I should admit that I, uh, I got my second job yesterday, so I'm kind of recovering from that as I speak. Um, but um, yeah, I'm going to be singing a song by Dadin Abdulfam entitled Kandari Hushiyana, which translates to Boatmen Beware. Um, it was composed in 1926, shortly after um, communal violence erupted in Kolkata, just uh, the month prior. Um, and um, in many ways, I think it speaks to the, the essence of, of this conference and and it's uh, kind of inextricable from um, the legacy of Bangalore. Um, but yeah, Nazrul Islam was born in 1899 in West Bengal, in which is today um, India. And um, he passed away in 1976 in Dhaka, Bangladesh. Um, and uh, he was a revolutionary, um, an anti-colonialist, um, a writer, a poet, a composer. Um, his influences were um, very many and um, very diverse, um, which earned him um, you know, animosity from a whole spectrum of groups of people ranging from the, the very orthodox to the, the most reformist minded of groups of people of his day. Um, and he did this through his writings um, and essays, um, uh, the penning of, of poetry, the composition of songs and the teaching of these songs to um, so many luminaries of, of vocal music and instrumental music in Bengal. And, um, Today, he's remembered as Bidruhi Kobi, which means rebel poet. Um, and he is the national poet of Bangladesh. Um, unfortunately, near the end of his life, um, or not just the very end, but for a number of years um, prior to his death, um, his life was compromised by um, a neurodegenerative disease that um, prevented him from being prolific in the way that he was prior to uh, the kind of development of the disease. Um, and yet he, he was able to live through the formation of Bangladesh and, um, you know, um, is, is now kind of remembered um, very integrally um, among the minds of um, Bangladeshi today. And um, as with Mujib, um, people from all around the world who are interested in anti-colonial and um, 
justice work more generally. So yeah, I think I'm going to go ahead. Um, but right before going ahead, I did want to kind of thank um, Dr. Zia Udin Ahmed and Megna in particular for for having me today um, and performing um, for all of you on this very special occasion. So thank you. Um, did you hear me okay? Before I jump yeah. in. Okay. Yeah, we can hear you. Yes, go ahead. Tomal, Tomal yeah. can, can you explain the lyrics to them first? What does it mean? Oh, yeah, sure. I don't want to um, kind of go for very long, but I can very quickly, I have a translation pulled up um, by an individual named Shafi Khaled, and I can just read maybe the first stanza. Um, it translates to um, impregnable mountains, horizonless desert, murky, fathomless ocean, crossing into the night's darkness, O travelers, take note or beware. Um, and there's a, a lot of really beautiful imagery about um, individuals um, kind of on this boat um, during like a storm and during um, lots of really raucous waters, you know, trying to make their way to the shore um, and people kind of like having to keep up hope, having to kind of keep up um, um, a sense of confidence to, to struggle in this very difficult journey. Um, and so the focus is on um, individuals kind of like um, see, see to their own liberation. I hope that's helpful. And here is uh, Kandari Bushiak. Thank you. 
Excellent. I have to I have to mention something. So Tamali did a great job. So this this song was written and it meant you are saying Kandari. Kandari is the leader. This is a journey. You have to cross this ocean of this uh, this uh, dangerous time of our nation, as if you are crossing a very a river with lot of lot of waves. You have to be careful. And you have to really be very strong. You have to take your journey, your people to the other part of the land and make sure if somebody, somebody drowned, don't say they are Hindu or Muslim. Tell them they're my, the children of my mother. And there are a lot of things will happen in your journey, but you have to be very strong. And you have to take the whole people to the safety. So this is actually, actually when everybody was the colonial um, and the colonial operations and this misunderstanding, the riots and everything starting with Indian Muslims. He was basically saying that that the leaders you have to be careful with this turbulence. You have to make sure that keep your head straight. And all these people are your mother's children. They're not Hindu. They're not Muslims. So that's the basically the song was inspired to many many people during the during those those times. Thank you, Tamar. Thank you, Dr. Ahmed. That was um that was very helpful. Yeah, thank you so much, Somal. Um, I mean, it's been so great to meet you throughout this process. Um, like we said earlier in the day, we were talking about the importance of this history and being rooted in it. And just your performance, it really felt like you're on that boat. Um, and just we're crying out for that leader to come back and it just all felt very relevant for today. So thank you so much. It was really lovely. Yeah, I, I agree with Magna entirely. Thank you. Um, I think I think these two beautiful, very, very beautiful performances was uh, the perfect way to end our first day. Um, so before we log off, I'd like to conclude by um, first, thanking all of our panelists and all of our performances, um, and also for everyone who attended and participated and discussed. Um, it's, it's a shame we can't be together during COVID right now, but um, I'm glad that we were all able to be together digitally. Um, I wanted to go ahead and announce our program for the next day. Um, so tomorrow morning, we'll be starting a little bit earlier for the second and final day of our conference uh, will be starting at 9.30 a.m. PST, um, 7 p.m. IST. 
EST. 9.30 a.m. EST, not PST. Oh, yeah. Sorry. Sorry, maybe it didn't come through the speaker. Um, 9.30 a.m. EST. Thanks, Jahan. Um, and we will have a panel which ties together everything that we have discussed today and synthesizes it forward uh, for um, our commitment to building a new world. Uh, and so we will have three speakers tomorrow. The first, Anthony, Dr. Anthony Montero, uh, the second, Professor Prabhat Patnaik, and the third, Dr. Raymond Soban. Um, and so we will continue the discussion by understanding um, what all of this history and all of this political context means for the future uh, with these veteran freedom fighters who have uh, been a part of the world struggle for peace uh, and who we have a lot to learn from regarding uh, the struggle for the way forward in the context of the current crisis. Um, so we have a very exciting second day tomorrow. Um, and yeah, once again, I wanted to thank you uh, thank you all for being here today. Thank, um, you, Mich thank you, Michelle. You did a great job. <laughs> and you had every minute. Yeah, I, I learned so much and I enjoyed this a lot as well. Um, would anyone else like to add anything? Uh, I just wanted to say a little bit about who the speakers are tomorrow because um, it will be our keynote panel. And like Michelle said, um, people who are who, have, who are really central participants in the struggle that we've been fighting, um, or the struggle that we've been studying. So Dr. Montero, he doesn't need an introduction to our uh, audience because he's uh, our mentor and the founder of the Saturday Free School, but also a world-renowned Du Bois scholar who can put uh, what we've been what we've been talking about in the context of Du Bois um, and also the the world economic situation. Um, Prabhat Badnayak is the Professor Emeritus of Economics at Jawaharlal Nehru University, um, but who's also a former Vice Chairman of the Kerala State Planning Board. And we asked him to speak because he really has an understanding of imperialism as a world system. Um, and he is actually a colleague of the next presenter, who is uh, Professor Dr. Rehman Soban, who's an economist but also a member of the first planning commission of Bangladesh, a head of the Center for Policy Dialogue and a veteran of the Bangladeshi freedom struggle. He was actually responsible for the campaign around the world uh, to drum up uh, popular support for Bangladesh. So these are all very seasoned, celebrated veterans of the struggle that we're studying. And what will be exciting is they're going to be talking about uh, what a vision forward is uh, what the practice of peace and freedom and justice actually looks like for our time. So I just wanted to say that, and it will be moderated by uh, Nanta Chaturvedi, and we we really greatly look forward to everybody's participation and dialogue. Great. Okay, thank you everyone for attending, and we'll see you all tomorrow.